The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our Not School Learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 137 is something like, how do our tastes reflect our social position? And we read, Distinction, a Social Critique of the Judgment of Taste, by Pierre Bourdieu from 1979. That is the introduction, chapter 1 through page 63, and the conclusion and postscript. You can join the discussion, get the text, and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Lintonmeyer, getting high and mighty on my educational capital in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, making excuses for why I cannot adequately consume high culture art in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allwin, demanding to be approached with a specifically aesthetic intention in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Tim Quirk feeling partially responsible in Oakland, California. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Tim. Hey, Tim. A, a returning guest of sorts. Yeah, like I said, I think this is my fault. <laughs> Say <Yes>. why. <laughs> because I mentioned this treatise in an aside when Mark was interviewing me for his other podcast. And somehow or other, even though I have no real qualification to be having this conversation, I am now here. <laughs> well, that, that has never stopped us before. I was just going to say, welcome, welcome to the club. <laughs> but you had read this. What was the circumstances in which you put yourself through this long ago? Oh, man. Well, I'll try to tell a very short version of the story. I had given a presentation at a thing called the Pop Conference, which is one of my favorite events ever. It takes place, you well, it's taken place in various venues, but mostly at the Experience Music Project in Seattle. It's structured like an academic conference in that you have to submit an abstract and a selection committee chooses if you're going to be able to present at it. But it's open not just to academics, it's open to anybody who thinks critically about music for a living. So you get this really nice cross-section of academics and music journalists and just sometimes performers themselves all getting together to talk about music. And usually there's like some sort of topic for the year. And you were were a performer before and then at that point you were working already in the electronic music industry or... In the online music industry, yes, I was running the editorial team at uh, Rhapsody, an online music subscription service. And so this particular year, I was giving a presentation basically with a lot of data about how I saw on-demand music streaming services as they became more mainstream, how they might change listening habits and musical tastes. And while it tried to be a very data-centric presentation, I would say it was slightly controversial, mostly because the examples I was using, for reasons both of my own taste and of that's what the data was showing, tended to be white, guitar-driven bands. Not exclusively, but there was a preponderance of them. And also, I think, in retrospect, my paper had what I thought at the time was an amusing title, but turned out to be rather controversial. It was called Good News for Yola Tango. And the hypothesis (laughs) of the piece was that being... And granted, I had been in a cult indie rock band myself, and so... The hypothesis of my piece was that in the future, when you move to an on-demand listening world, you can get paid not just for how many people like your music, but how much individual people like your music. The more often you get listened to, the more money you make. And so 
You could be a Yola Tango who maybe only has, I don't know, 50,000 fans, 100,000 fans. But if they each listen to you 10,000 times, that's as good as having, you know, a million fans who each listen to you once, right? That was sort of the thrust of the piece. But because I was extolling not necessarily the virtues of this type of music, but saying this type of music had a different future than it had had a past, in the midst of, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term poptimism, but in music journalist world, there's been a change in the last decade or more. There's this movement called poptimism, which basically posits that in the olden days, in the 80s and 90s, music critics tended to valorize indie rock at the expense of ignoring mainstream culture. And so now you're supposed to pay much more attention and value the top 40 as much as you do or as much as we used to Yola Tango. So for all of those reasons, during the Q&A after my paper, there was there was this very palpable negative current from the assembled critics, right? <laughs> and so a friend of mine who was an academic, I was sort of talking to her afterwards, and I was kind of, I was vaguely accused of being a racist because of this, which was, you know, never a fun thing. And so she gave me two books at the end of it, and she said, look, you're just not familiar with, like, you know, the current thought process and, like, the literature you're supposed to have read to be having these conversations. And she gave me a book called White Privilege, and she gave me oh, this God. book, Distinction. What were the grounds for accusing you of racism? Well, again, nobody specifically said that, but what they did say is this presentation would be a lot more interesting if you were using some more African-American artists as your examples, rather than the Yola Tangos of the world and the Wilkos of the world. But nobody explicitly said you're a racist. They just said, hey, you're painting a grim future. My point was I'm not making an aesthetic value judgment about this music. I'm just saying music with fewer fans has a more economically lucrative future than it did at past. Right. And my examples could have been better chosen for the audience. But that led me to this book, which I mentioned in passing when we were talking about my bands on your other podcast, and here we are. It was after folks that listened to that episode that you should go look at the nakedlyexaminedmusic.com page and <laughs> listen to it. But yeah, the context, it was actually after we were done, and I was trying to squeeze a few more minutes out of you before you had to go back to your real job, and I tried giving a quick version of the aesthetics lecture that I give every single time we have an aesthetics episode of some sort or another. And I didn't do it particularly well, and you didn't really buy it. But part of the upshot was whenever you do aesthetic theorizing, as we have, for instance, Kant, within the last year, we did an episode on Kant's aesthetic theory. And Kant is one of the main targets of Bourdieu here, insofar as he has an axe to grind, in that he says that you shouldn't be doing theory without analyzing where the theory is coming from in terms of your place in social space. In other words, Kant was being a snob. He was channeling aristocratic values, and that doesn't mean that you just dismiss everything he has to say and say, ah, he's just being a snob. Like, you can still pay attention to the content, but the picture is not complete unless you get a sociological picture of where theorizing in general and theorizing about taste in particular is coming from. The basic idea is that these aesthetic judgments are going to be the result of and a means of establishing social distinctions, distinctions, you know, between, let's say, the upper class, the middle class, and the lower class. So what you like and what you don't like is an indicator of where you stand in the hierarchy and by sort of being conditioned into one sort of kind of taste or another, say for popular culture or for something that's more refined, you are being conditioned to take a certain role in society or it's a means of establishing your role. And this book basically has a whole bunch of data supporting that. Yes, right. it's a survey. <laughs> it's a survey by questionnaire carried out in 1963 first and then 1967 to 68 on a sample of... 1,217 people. 
So the parts that I was able to skim over are yes. where he gets in depth into the survey itself. But the sort of the overall thrust is interesting in that, yes, you've got this thing between the upper and the lower class where fine art is a way of excluding people that don't have the educational background to understand it. Part of the point of this is it's not just that you need an educational background to understand that art. In fact, I think it's kind of the point that that's not what's going on. It's just that the same sorts of sociological conditions that will lead you to have a really good education will also lead you to have been conditioned to liking these sorts of things. It's not that I need to understand a lot in order to prefer classical music over rock music. It's not that I need to have a greater knowledge of music theory. And a lot of it's just implicit, he says. I just have to have been conditioned in certain ways. Well, Seth, give us an opening statement here. So the key thrust was that this was intended to be a sociological and empirical study, mm -hmm. which demonstrated that in addition to just questioning people about what their preferences were as far as cultural artifacts, he also got a fair amount of demographic information about them. And he had a classification where some people were working class and some were bourgeois and you know some were this and some were that. And there were distinctions in French terms in here that I didn't exactly follow. But the idea was he felt there was statistical correlation between preferences expressed by people who gathered together in certain social classes and who had, in turn, similar educations for the same sorts of things. So that's really the point of the book is to say, if you're working class, you're going to prefer Mozart over Mahler, or, you know, whatever all the various things were, and certain popular singers over certain others and certain types of, I think food might have been included in this as well. But yeah, so that's kind of the empirical piece of it. And then what I would say is the more speculative or philosophical aspect is that he suggests that this is essentially the inculcation of ideology in some respect, and that education functions to perpetuate these cultural distinctions and reinforce them because it's not symmetric. It's not like working class have their taste and that's good for them and it's like not, you know, nobody else cares and upper class have their taste and that's good for them. And it's, it's that there's a hierarchy in place where it's okay for people with high culture tastes, as it were, to not like low culture, but it's not okay for low culture people not to like high culture. So low culture people typically have to find excuses for why they don't get into it. They don't understand it or they don't care for it, whereas it's perfectly fine for somebody who loves Proust to say Punch and Judy is ridiculous. And I know I wanted it's to drop... disgusting. I wanted to drop Punch and Judy just because it always <laughs> seems to be a reference for low culture. And I bet you, I bet you there aren't 5% of our listeners who have any idea what the fuck Punch and Judy is. Let's yeah, take so us, I, do a survey of that. <laughs> I think it's the middle. So those distinctions you made, Seth, were the bourgeois, petit bourgeois, and then the working class. So roughly corresponding to upper class, middle class, and lower class. But then he contrasts it with the professionals. So the bourgeois are more the business types, whereas the professionals are like doctors and then the educated class. And then I think he just considers straight up rich people, right? As a, Apart from the bourgeois as well. Well, these are, yeah, these are distinctions I'm not clear on. I mean, the tripartite classical distinction that, yeah, the bourgeois are the upper classes and then the petit bourgeois are the sort of merchant classes. I don't know if professionals now fall into that category. Do you know for him who he's gathering where? Or Yeah, I thought those were two different things. I mean, I guess the overall that it's the upper and lower class, but then within, so he says the definition of cultural nobility, this is page two, is the stake in a struggle which has gone on unceasingly from the 17th century to the present days between groups differing in their ideas of culture, 
and of the legitimate relation to culture and to works of art, and therefore differing in the conditions of acquisition of which these dispositions are the product. And the, the struggle is between those, the educated, so like the scholar types, and the hereditary nobility, that this is still in a time, you know, France in particular had a lot more of, you know, we might think here the upper classes are the bourgeois, but in France, even in 1979, I think there were still like the bourgeois in some way are crass in a way that true nobility is not. I think there's more distinctions that are explicitly acknowledged and played upon in the French society that he's coming from than we have here. And that's part of what makes it hard for us to figure out. The nobles themselves are not ultimately, the most cultured members will be the scholars, yeah. according to the whole standard of the what he'll call the pure pleasure or this, uh, you know, the, the pure aesthetic because the courtiers and the nobility, they might be sensitive to trends or something like that, and even to the trends of high culture. But there's a difference between that and being actually knowledgeable. Yeah, I don't know how all these fine-grained distinctions work out in terms of the, like I said, the larger tripartite distinction. I don't know what gets grouped where, but there are all sorts of finer distinctions to make. There is actually a really helpful chart in the edition we're looking at. It's page 17. You know, I was very skeptical. I wasn't understanding what these different distinctions of society were in France, and I wasn't understanding why well-tempered Clavier was, you know, was high culture and Blue Danube was low culture. But They're all high culture to us. It's like, it's all classical. I don't, that, that's, that's class. You look at this chart and it's the page of the book that actually just drove home the empirical basis of what he was doing. And I was like, oh, it doesn't matter whether I believe him, whether I'm skeptical of the subjective distinctions he's making between these different works. When you look at the empirical data, there's three pieces that he's described. One is sort of high culture, one is middle brow, and one is low. And he's showing you sort of algorithmically how it breaks down very, very predictably by class. And so I'll just sort of work through it here. The way he's got it, the cultural mobility, the ones with the most class, as it were, according to these charts, are higher education teachers and art producers themselves. The next tier is secondary teachers. The next tier down from that is private sector executives and engineering professions. The next tier is public sector executives. The next tier is industrial and commercial employers, then cultural intermediaries, art craftsmen, then primary teachers, then medical social services, then technicians, whatever that is, then junior commercial executives and secretaries. And we're getting, you know, we're going lower and lower here. Now junior administrative executives, then clerical and commercial employees, then craftsmen and shopkeepers, then domestic servants, and at the bottom is manual workers. So those are the brackets that he's using. And as obscure as some of those seem to me, you look at the data and there's just this almost perfect reflection that if you're a manual worker, you have very little familiarity with the well-tempered clavier, whereas if you're a higher education teacher and art producer, you have maximum familiarity with it. And at what he considers the bottom of the spectrum, Blue Danube, the higher education teachers and art producers like don't like that. And the manual workers like they love it. It's their favorite. And the graphs are just yeah. astonishing. Yes. The one that you skipped over was the professions. That was above private sector executives and engineers, but below secondary teachers. So doctors and lawyers are not quite as cultured as teachers, but more so than any oh, of those yes. crass bourgeois. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I thought we'd take a little while to get here, but there's an interesting point that you mentioned that's called out by this graph, Tim. So well-tempered clavier, it's linear from one end to the other as to preference. And then blue Danube mm -hmm. is the complete opposite, but also linear. But in the middle, Rhapsody in Blue has almost like a bell curve where it's disliked 
almost equally by the high and the low, but enjoyed by the by enjoyed yeah. by the middle, the middle group. <laughs> um, and I, he met, he goes on at yeah. length, but it's an interesting. I will take screenshots of this and post to Twitter <laughs> while we're so that fans who can look up our Twitter feed and they can see the pictures we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's because the point he makes is that the petit bourgeois, the ones in the middle, are unsure of what they're supposed They sort of know, they're trying to imitate bourgeois taste, right? So they know that they're supposed to like certain things and, what, and they're not supposed to like other things, but they aren't exactly sure of what those things are. So the higher in the class you go, the more they're going to do this exclusionary thing where they know, oh, Blue Danube, that's for the uncultivated and well-tempered clavier, yes. Can we just say country music instead of Blue Danube? Can we just, <laughs> yeah. can we just say that? Yeah. <laughs> is, is that well, like you said, everything is high culture to us. I mean, it's hard to make those distinctions, but yeah, you could. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, oh, country music, that's for a certain kind of person. And and Petulia Clark was the one popular music example. Petulia Clark <laughs> and Jacques Brel. I think Petulia Clark was like the was the low class and Jacques Brel was middle brow. Those yeah. are the two that I got. Yeah, so I don't know what counts as middle brow today. The thing that might confuse us about what category does it go in. So the lower classes will just, they'll go for what they like naively. They're just responding to preferences, whereas the middle and the upper classes are responding to I would say the middle brow is classic rock that like my brother-in-law only likes the Beatles and Dylan and the Rolling Stones, like things that have been consecrated. I don't know, though. You don't get any social standing out of that. The thing that interests me about and why this chart I found so helpful in sort of crystallizing what he was saying is I think from society to society and era to era, what falls in any one of those categories is going to vary. Right. And so it almost doesn't matter what content you're talking about. The idea is if you're talking about a particular class, the people with more cultural capital are going to like things at this higher tier in a very predictable way. That's sort of algorithmically the opposite of what people with lower cultural capital are going to think about that thing. And so the way to decide what's middlebrow, highbrow or lowbrow isn't to sort of make a subjective judgment about it, but just do a survey like this and see where it falls. Yeah, I think today it's clear with something like fiction, for instance, where you've got, you know, these plot driven and really generally badly written because I've looked at a lot of them now. But, uh, you know, thrillers, for instance, right? So novels that you can just pick up and consume and that have no interest in anything aesthetic. Like they're, it's completely about giving you, you know, feeling of suspense and then hardcore literary fiction, which is really, really demanding. And in some cases, you know, like I read Marilyn Robinson's I think it's called housekeeping. There's basically almost no plot to it, but a lot of beautiful writing. And I really enjoy beautiful writing, but it was getting a little bit rough going there <laughs> with no plot, right? So, I mean, especially these days, we're all, you know, no matter what our education, we're conditioned to wanting that kind of what Kant would call the charms. We got to have some level of that in our entertainments. And then in the middle, you, you have sorts of, I don't know if Gone Girl falls into this category, but it's, you know, just looking at it, it's a very well-written novel. It has some literary aspiration to it, but it's also very plot-driven. So you have sort of hybrid and very clearly marketed at upper middle class. And if you talk to your upper middle class friends, these are a lot of people will have read this novel, for instance, Gone Girl. They're not necessarily going to be reading Don DeLillo or something like that, something that's harder. Maybe Jonathan Franzen is a better example because he's definitely... Like Corrections, for instance. He's definitely a literary novelist, but he's writing for a broader audience. So anyway, just to get a concrete example down. But. You can do this in a lot of different mediums. So in movies, I look at somebody like Inaridu, 
you know, who had the Revenant this year and, and, mm-hmm. and Birdman last year. And they sort of present as these artistic visions, but just going by my <laughs> Twitter feed are absolutely reviled by the people I consider having the most cultural capital, right? And like I run hot and cold with the guy, but I don't hate him the way critics that I respect mm-hmm. despise him and just think he's the cheesiest thing ever. I've been trying to work out why that is. That is a great question because I just rewatched Birdman the other night with my wife and we have good friends who hate that movie. And I was like, how can you hate it? Well, were they hating it from the low end or from the high end? (laughs) That's right. That's a good question. um, Probably from the high end. (laughs) Interesting question. This particular couple was coming at it from both sides. Actually, they're both highly educated, but not culturally so, so to speak. But that was one of the cool things was when you look at this generationally, somewhere he says, like, by a, a simple dialectical inversion, the next generation will despise what the previous generation thought was great. And that's partly why upper classes, why the the ones at the top of the scale could, in some cases, embrace low culture things. Now, they can't really embrace low culture things. They end up being hipsters. They end up making it ironic. They can't actually take it seriously. They bring it into some second order. But it's still, at least nominally, is no, 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 we have to return. So even if you read this book and were like, I'm not going to be a snob anymore, or, uh, you know, I, I hate those damn artistic snobs, I'm going to reject that, and I'm going to really like the music of the people, the, the blues, the deep blues. Then you end up being a special kind of blues snob. Well, the point there, too, is that when you make that return, you're still privileging form over function and content, right? The aesthetic disposition is that, and we'll get into this more, is that disinterested interest in form and you can do that with anything right you could take the thriller for the uncultivated person it's just a thrill ride they can't put it down but you could take a completely different angle with that and come at it from a oh let's and of course i'm sure there are a lot of college courses now which do this they probably assign only pulp fiction but you read it from this other level on you so you haven't escaped this aesthetic point of view yeah and there's some fascinating bits in there when he starts talking about movies where People in different you know classes who go to movies just as frequently as one another, but the more educated ones they focus on the direct they can name the directors of all the movies, whereas the less educated can't even though they've seen the same movies and the same number of movies with the same frequency so there's this quote that just stuck with me where some only see a quote western starring Burt Lancaster, others discover an early John Sturges or the latest Sam Peckinpah in identifying what is worthy of being seen and the right way to see it. They are aided by their whole social group which guides and reminds them with its have you seen and you must see, and by the whole corporation of critics mandated by the group to produce legitimate classifications and the discourse necessarily accompanying any artistic enjoyment worthy of the name. Right. Mm-hmm. So the thing that would kind of screw that up now if we're trying to bring this into the present day, which we sort of should, I think, as we're going through this, is, of course, the greater opportunity for autodidacticism, which he does have quite a bit to say about the autodidact as somebody that learns these things on their own outside of the, you know, their social group, where they were raised, their actual educational capital would not support this. But they manage just through interest and exposing themselves, you know, to go learn the names of all the film directors or something, despite the fact that that's not the cool, you know, maybe they and their friends do it. So they build their own little social group. But I think he brings that up mostly to say how that group is still excluded by sort of the ones with the, yeah. with the actually greater cultural capital and background and in, how does he say, really it's a breeding in their upbringing. So that's on page 24. There's legitimate autodidacticism 
and then illegitimate. And then ah. the legitimate is if you're a professor and you make forays into other fields, that's okay. But you got to have some sort of title. You got to have some sort of credential to be taken seriously. The essentially contradictory phrase legitimate autodidacticism is intended to indicate the difference in kind between the highly valued extracurricular culture of the holder of academic qualifications and the illegitimate extracurricular culture of the autodidact. So, yes, knowing a lot isn't really the relevant thing, actually. You know, or at page 25, he goes on to say, you know, a degree is not a guarantee of a specific competence about culture. And that's not really the point. It's not that you need to know, you know, a lot. Again, you have some great knowledge about film or literature or something to know what you're supposed to value. You can pick up that and you can do it almost unconsciously. You can know what's supposed to be high culture and supposed to be low culture and respond to that and be a quote unquote cultured person with very, very little actual scholarly or ac academic knowledge. One of the, his main targets in here is this ideology of charisma, that taste is a gift of nature, which I think is the thing that is coming from the hereditary aristocracy, that even within educational institutions, he says there's sort of a contempt for doing it by the book, for what you actually learn. And I've encountered this myself just in, I was almost irritated by when I got to college and there were, I just felt like in grade school, that you were just graded on how smart you were. <laughs> and so I felt like since I kind of, you know, tested well early on, I got this sense of, man, you know, I don't have to prove myself through actually fulfilling requirements of particular teachers to learn particular things. It's just, it's my nature. I'm a smart person, so I should do well in this. <laughs> and so when I actually got to a level of education where you just couldn't bullshit your way through it, it was actually kind of surprising. So that's my own little snobbish parallel Oh, that level of education exists? I never encountered that level of education. Well, that's because you did. You weren't a philosophy major. Yeah. So. <laughs> ah. I, I did find that, like, that at the college level, if it was like a great books of the Far East course, if I was doing Taoism or something through that, I could just bullshit my way through a paper. You know, of course I read it, but like that you could just say something that's kind of deep, say something that's insightful, and they say, oh, wow, that's wonderful. But in philosophy, there was some sort of objectivity that was developed or some standard that you could objectively not fulfill, even if you were smart and doing the reading. And just like there was a, a particular mastery that you had to have. So that will be a surprise to many people that supposedly philosophy is the thing academically that is harder to bullshit. It was certainly harder for students who had us as TAs to bullshit. That's right. Your logic course. Oh, God. <laughs> hey, I wanted to, to go back to that note real quick, that the point that Wes and Tim were talking about earlier around the enjoyment of a thing versus the discussion of a thing, you know, saying, oh, this is a great John Ford or this is a pre-Preston Sergis or whatever. Isn't part of the mechanism that he's describing here is that, in fact, unless you're in a certain place in the hierarchy, or maybe not for anybody who's in the hierarchy, a pure enjoyment of something just isn't even permitted. Uh, you're either reacting to it, or in the case of that petit bourgeois central thing, you have to articulate some kind of familiarity with it. So there's never the ability to just have an aesthetic experience or enjoy something culturally, because either you don't, and yet you feel like you have to respond to that lack of enjoyment, or you are aspiring to be the kind of person that does from that middle ground. Is that not part of what's going on as well? Well, can we go to that actual page? It's page 28. What you're mentioning here is one of the most important quotes in the, in the yeah. reading. So at the top of, beginning of the top of page 28, 
such competence is not necessarily so he's thinking of cultural competence here you know the, the ability to make these distinctions between high and low such competence is not necessarily acquired by means of the quote-unquote scholastic labors in which some cinephiles or jazz freaks indulge for example transcribing film credits onto catalog cards most often it results from the unintentional learning made possible by a disposition acquired through domestic or scholastic inculcation of legitimate culture. Let me just point out again that this inculcation does not mean necessarily learning a great deal analytically about something. It can just be learning what's supposed to be good and what's supposed to not be good. This transposable disposition, armed with a set of perceptual and evaluative schemes that are available for general application, inclines its owner towards other cultural experiences and enables him to perceive, classify, and memorize them differently. Where some only see a Western starring Burt Lancaster, others discover an early John Sturges or the latest Sam Peckinpah in identifying what is worthy of being seen and the right way to see it. They are aided by their whole social group. Okay, this has already been read. And then the whole corporation of critics and so on. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm actually a little confused now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think part of what he's saying is that, you know, this is inculcated into you by partly what you get through osmosis just in your home environment if you're in the right class, but also through your educational institutions. It's not just that they're teaching you specific things about movies or books or music. They're teaching you a way of cataloging and classifying the world and cultural objects in the world. And by so doing, you are classifying yourself as the type of person who knows how to do that sort of thing. And a few pages earlier than that, there's this thing that stood out to me where it says activities as alien to the explicit demands of the institution. This is an educational institution as keeping a diary, wearing heavy makeup, theater going or going dancing, writing poems or playing rugby can thus find themselves inscribed in the position allotted within the institution as a tacit demand constantly underlined by various mediations. So the idea is it's not just what you're explicitly being taught in school. It's you're being taught how to be and how to consume culture as well as other stuff. And that all of that is mostly a way of marking yourself out from other people right. who don't know how to do that. Well put. Yeah, very well put. And there's a great follow-up to that. Are, were you on page 25 or so, Tim? Yeah, it's 25 at the very bottom. Oh, the sentence right before that. The official differences produced by academic classifications tend to produce or reinforce real differences by inducing in the classified individuals a collectively recognized and supported belief in the differences, thus producing behaviors that are intended to bring real being into line with official being. That's the connection between, we see the educational institution here, him describing the educational institution as this mechanism. The educational institution doesn't create those classes, but it defines them and reinforces them and indoctrinates us. The question is, where do those official differences come from? Because they're not generated or manufactured by the educational system. Yeah, and I think he's going to be discussing the answer to that, right? What does a certain kind of taste line up with one class and not with another? And I think that we're going to get the answer to that question as we go forward. I just want to make the point that the educational institutions, as he describes them, are just mechanisms that do the work. They're not actually the things that generate the ideology of the differences themselves. Well, it sounds like he's going to say that class... Certain economic, you know, exactly. material conditions of living are going to ultimately generate these distinctions. And then we'll end up swimming back towards Adorno on this one. But it's <laughs> essentially, yes, the class system that's created by capitalism, right? That's going to. And that'll has certain kinds of, I would call them psychological effects that lead to a certain kind of aesthetic 
way of being. I found Bourdieu refreshingly unmarxist in certain ways that he, as a sociologist, is more sensitive to the complexities. So it's not just the rich versus the poor or the bourgeois versus the working class, that there's all these very contingent historical transitions, you know, I was talking about between generations, for instance, or this change, this struggle between the newly educated and the hereditary nobility is something that is playing itself at a particular place and time. It is not just sort of a function of that's just the way class works or something like that. It's less simple than what we were seeing in the Adorno. Going back to what you were saying before, Mark, about, you know, the, what were you saying, the charisma or something, they're running through all of this. There's the working class, which is, has this naive appreciation of art where everything's like literal, taste is mm -hmm. literal, right? Like, you know, when you're looking at a painting, you're thinking about the colors. When you're eating food, it's like, how filling is it? As opposed to how elegantly presented is it to me? And as you rise up the ranks of cultural capital, but also just, you know, social class, the idea is you're marking yourself off from that, you, basically, you've got the leisure, you've got the time yes. to invest in thinking about all this stuff in a different way that's less related to the literal tastes. And that part of what I, he, he only says this explicitly a couple of times in the book, but the general sense that I got from it was that what's going on here is if you are a different class, hey, you want to signify, you want to signal to everybody, hey, I'm this different class, but you also want to justify to yourself mm. that you actually deserve it, right? And so there's this thing that comes through of like, oh, I have these sorts of tastes that other people don't. I'm one of the chosen ones. Therefore, my position in society is earned, you know, and I, it's right that mm -hmm. I am here. Like you said, he's not all that Marxist, so he doesn't come right out and say it all that often, but it's the subtext that's running through everything he's saying. Yeah, we should say sort of overall, is a sociologist... I listened to another podcast sort of going into his general uh, method that I'll link folks to, but he had a philosophical background. He sort of started in philosophy, but then really for the, a lot of the reason that people reject philosophy. Thought better of it? <laughs> well, he, he wanted to do something that was more practical. So he, he saw sociology, what he was doing, not merely as scientific analytic, but as having a social purpose. So even if he's not beating you over the head with it all the time in the way that Adorno and Horkheimer were doing in the last essay. He really is trying to, you know, pretty obviously undermine this oppression of the working class or, or these, you know, this ideology of charisma, all these things he sees as signs of something that is causing human suffering and that it's his position as sociologist to point these things out so we can better understand each other, I guess. Yeah. One of the connections here between the material conditions and the particular tastes has to do with signifying your immunity to necessity. So once you are in a position, you know, economically where you don't have to worry about making a living, you can start doing things like wasting time, taking walks, you know, the whole idea of like, I'm going to exercise, go to the gym. Whereas, you know, for millennia, labor has meant exercise, right? And, and who would do that in their spare time? Who would need to do that? So there's a link between that and then the pure aesthetic, the Kantian aesthetic of disinterest, of a withdrawal from charm and gratification and, and all those things, which are sort of indications of your immunity to the need for that. Because all that other stuff is perceived as vulgar. And so this is, you know, the line that I like is in matters of taste more than anywhere else, all determination is negation and tastes are perhaps first and foremost distastes, disgust provoked by horror or visceral intolerance, quote, sick making of the tastes of others. Yep. 
I read that and I feel terrible because that's I right. am that way, right? Like, I mean, there's certain pop music, certain sitcoms that I just find insipid, and they do make you know, it's maybe not quite as visceral as making me sick, but I, you know, I do feel kind of disgust for it. I was like, oh, how could right. anyone like that? It's so cheap, it's so cheesy, it's so obvious what it's doing, right? The disgust is based on how manipulative it is, how quick it is to try to please you without any sort of subterfuge, right? It's just going to ring your bell. There's something offensive about that, I think rightly. Right. So I've always felt like I was responding to the work itself, right? I was like, oh, that work thinks so little of me. How dare it? But what I'm picking up from Bordeaux is, no, I'm actually reacting. I'm othering myself to the people. I'm saying, oh, I'm not like the people who are fooled by this stuff, those idiots. Well, I've, I've had actually the the experience with certain kinds of music, like I eventually like it, but only when I can get out of my mind, the people who introduced me to it, <laughs> like people in the dorm floor <laughs> that like listen to REM or Pearl Jam or whatever, like, Oh, these bands are so stupid because these people I didn't like at the time. And like, oh, it was only when I could get past that. Or maybe it's a matter of even forgetting about the personalities of the musicians themselves that <laughs> you can appreciate it in a way that makes sense to you or something, but it's all, you can't escape snobbery, I think, as far as uh, Bordeaux is concerned. Oh, yeah. For me, it took me years to appreciate Neil Young <laughs> just because my older brother and all his stoner friends who I hated loved him. So, like, I just couldn't hear it. We shouldn't ignore the <laughs> fact that there's a... Uh, sorry to segue from Neil Young back to Kant, but the more fundamental idea is that judgments of beauty, an aesthetic disposition, it's meant to essentially be freeing. It's meant to, and this is Schopenhauer as well, it's meant to free you from the heteronomy of the will. It's meant to free you from being enslaved to your passions and the world of necessity and animal pleasure and gratification. What's offensive, supposedly, is a work of art that's, instead of doing that, is just actually enslaving you. That's why we object to something being manipulative or we reject to sitcoms that are just too obvious and have no other aesthetic component to them and, and, and no real wit or something like that. I don't know that he's so much arguing against the Kantian idea is just saying that it's sort of socially situated so that we have to bear in mind the sense in which this idea of a pure aesthetic gaze and a, and a Kantian aesthetic as distinguished from gratification bears out a distinction between classes, between material conditions and so on and so forth. I do like the fact that at the end, so this is this postscript after the conclusion toward a vulgar critique of pure critiques. And that's where he explicitly, you know, more brings in Kant and Schopenhauer and the other philosophers that we've read and Derrida later. And it's, you know, make sure to say, look, it would be just as much a mistake to dismiss everything Kant has to say just because of its aristocratic origins as it would be to just ignore those origins and embrace what he has to say. He doesn't really give you what the solution is. It's maybe take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> take it with a, with a, with a sociological <laughs> background intact. I mean, the, the question is, if in a classless society, right, if there could be such a thing, would all these kinds of distinctions collapse? And then where would they collapse to? Would there cease to be a distinction between mere gratification and aesthetic appreciation of form if they weren't grounded in class distinctions? I tend to think they wouldn't simply go away, that they can be used as markers of class distinction and that they can take on in a way more importance because of it and maybe even have 90% of their significance defined by that. I, I don't think the distinctions themselves are simply artifacts of class. 
although I, I'm realizing now, since you're mentioning the postscript, he does say what I was saying before explicitly. He says, the opposition between the taste of nature and the taste of freedom introduces a relationship which is that of the body to the soul, between those who are only natural and those whose capacity to dominate their own biological nature affirms their legitimate claim to dominate social nature. So he was being more explicit about this than I remembered. So he characterizes, I think we had gotten to page 28, characterizes sort of what makes up this upper class disposition as the aesthetic disposition. He says, any legitimate work tends, in fact, to impose the norms of its own perception and tacitly defines as the only legitimate mode of perception, the one which brings into play a certain disposition and a certain competence. I guess there's two things going on there. For one, one, when you get enough education, art becomes a certain special way of experiencing things. Whereas he says, the uneducated, the lower classes, it's just like if you play music that's kind of not entirely consonant, if it's at dissonant at all, most people will just be like, ah, that's ugly. Ah, I don't want to hear that. Well, that's the, that's the uneducated thing. Once you've attained <laughs> the aesthetic disposition, then you can more dispassionately like, oh, that's kind of interesting. It's not just a matter of what hurts my ears yeah. and hurts my eyes. Are the colors pretty? Yes, you, you are trained <laughs> to not respond immediately to your instinctual reaction. Is it pleasurable or is it not pleasurable? You take a sort of meta-level view of it. In the same way, when he talks about pictures later on, if you're looking at a picture of a horrible war scene, he says the lower class person will tend to judge the picture entirely by its contents. Oh, that's horrible. And there's no idea that, well, oh, this is a beautiful picture of something horrible, which is someone in up the upper classes might be inclined to, hmm, this is an interesting picture. Look at the way the photographer has used shadow and blood or anyway. Well, that's one of the, the other parts of the, his study that he goes on about at length. I think it starts around page 35, where he asks folks in the questionnaire, what subjects look photogenic? What, what are fitting things to have a photograph of? A picture of pebbles, a picture of a sunset, a picture of <laughs> somebody's first communion, a picture of an old woman's gnarled hands. Yeah. And so as a summary, it was as you would expect, the, the least educated, the lowest cultural capital group were just sunsets are pretty. The sentimental <laughs> stuff. No, no, hands <laughs> exactly. Are ugly. But it's not even that just that the yeah. hands are ugly. It's the picture is simply of that object. So you get commentary, the, mm -hmm. the respondents simply go, oh, look at, you know, she must, it must be such and such a problem or that must hurt or this. There's not even that you haven't been trained to make that move to that second level evaluation of it simply as a representation, in which case it's not about the hands exactly. It's about the formal aesthetics of the representation. Well, in some ways, I saw the sort of naive take on it as more sophisticated in a way that instead of saying just taking the aesthetic sense, like I'm looking at a picture and so I have to judge it as I would a work of art, that they always thought in terms of what purpose was the, the photo supposed to serve. So like, yeah, that would be OK as a news photo, a photo of just little pebbles. Like, what the hell is the point of that? I'm not going <laughs> to put that up in my living room. It's not cool enough for that. Although some people said it would, it could be pretty if it was in color. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The point is, is that at a certain class level, the content of the representation is important. Yep. In other words, the subject. Mm -hmm. Why would you think that is pretty? Whereas then you get into the middle class, the petit bourgeois, whatever, and they think, well, anything could be the subject if it's treated mm -hmm. artistically or whatever. Actually, that's only at the highest level. 
The petit bourgeois, I think, were the pretentious ones to say, oh, a sunset, that's not a good subject for a painting because a sub, sort of, that's too cliche. Oh, Whereas okay, when you got the saying. most yeah. educated, then those people were like of the opinion that anything right. could be okay. So they would say rocks are okay, but also the sunset and the first communion are okay. Whereas the middle group wouldn't say that at all. This, sunset <laughs> is, is ironically okay. <laughs> When I was a working class, a sunset was beautiful. Then I became petit bourgeois, and the sunset <laughs> was no longer beautiful. And then I became whatever, the landed gentry, and uh, the sunset was once again beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> this is reminding me, I, I was just a couple weeks ago down in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest, and it's blue bonnet season. So as you're driving around the outskirts of Austin, they're just fields and fields full of blue bonnets. And they only bloom for a little while, but it's just like it's blue as far as the eye can see. And the guy that was driving me to the airport said, oh, yeah, there's a tradition now of, you know, when it's blue bonnet season, you come and you take your you drop your kids in the field and you have someone take their picture. And so, of course, I instantly went to Google image search and just typed in blue bonnet children. And there are pages and pages of this stuff that you can see. I guess I have the aesthetic disposition because I was looking at all of those and they just seemed horrifyingly <laughs> vulgar to me. It's just, I mean, it's because it's random and it makes no sense. It's just these children in a field of flowers and they were obviously, they didn't make their own way there. They were just deposited there. And it's very bizarre. I, I highly recommend if you want to see where you fall on the spectrum, go do a Google image search for kids in blue bonnet fields and see how they make you feel. Oh, Tim. Oh, Tim. I live in Austin. Seth lives in I Austin, live in Austin. And I have for 20 some odd years. <laughs> and if you want to have that experience, all you have to do is friend me on Facebook. Because <laughs> <laughs> do you get them in your feed constantly? Everybody. It's not just the kids. Dogs, selfies. Yes, we have, it. when, when I live there, we have our dog in blue bonnets. I, we have pictures of that. I'm, yes. uh, I'm looking at these now online. <laughs> yes, these are, these are horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the humanity. I feel less alone now. Well, let's explain why it's horrifying, though, in greater detail. I think this, is, this will be a really good example. Okay, I'm listening. I'm um, not allowed to, I was counting I'm not allowed on you to participate. To do that. No, no, I'm not allowed to participate in this conversation. Well, as far as I'm, as far as I'm concerned, this is the, the finding it horrifying is, is one of the things to be overcome to get to the next level of the dialectic. Well, only if you're really an asshole. <laughs> 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 What he says is the highest level, this, you know, that anything could be the subject of a painting, this sort of John Cage approach to the aesthetic disposition is something that you don't even need art. It's, you know, Duchamp that you could just look at a urinal and something and you could take the right. aesthetic disposition and find the beauty in it or, or it doesn't even have to have beauty. You stop even thinking in terms of beauty. It's just more aesthetic more generally. But then at some point in the text, I think he quotes an artist. I'm not sure where the quote is, but that itself is just a pretension that real artists, even somebody like John Cage and Duchamp, do not have. That that's like a pretentious, pseudo-intellectual people that pretend to like the urinal and pretend to appreciate Duchamp actually think, oh yes, anything is art. Like, no, actual artists don't think that. That was a one-off aesthetic joke, or you know, it was an advance in art at some point, but no, no. <laughs> so that too is to be overcome. So this puts me in mind... We did an episode on aesthetics back in the day on Nelson Goodman. And remember when we were talking to Jay about what is that horrible art that hangs in like doctor's offices and hotel rooms? Kincaid. 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 Now that strikes me as offensive and it inspires in me that, that reaction that you're describing, much more so than say pictures of kids in blue bonnets. 
So I think we can, you know, uh, we have to jump back to the postscript to really get at what's offensive about the blue bonnets, but objectively <laughs> offensive. Uh, <laughs> no. So page 486, the first full paragraph, discussed at the facile, the refusal of what is easy in the sense of simple and therefore shallow and cheap because it is easily decoded and culturally undemanding naturally leads to the refusal of what is facile in the ethical or aesthetic sense of everything which offers pleasures that are too immediately accessible and so discredited as childish or primitive, as opposed to the deferred pleasures of legitimate art, unquote. So I think that really, I don't know if we can say it even better than that. I mean, that, that gives you a very clear and I think very good explanation of what it is we might find objective about the children in blue bonnets pictures. It's this idea of the the cheapness of it, the lack of demand. He also goes on to say, giving the spectator the sense of being treated like any Tom, Dick, or Harry who can be seduced by tawdry charms, which invite okay. him to regress to the most primitive and elementary forms of pleasure, whether they are passive satisfactions of the infantile taste for sweet liquids, syrupy, or the quasi-animal gratifications of sexual desire. Yeah, okay, really. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to jump in here. So let's let's distinguish between that act as a mode of production by an artist who's intentionally trying to do that, and something like people sharing pictures of their kids on Facebook or whatever. The yeah. family who hires a professional photographer to take pictures of their kids in the blue bonnet <laughs> exactly. and then shares those exactly. pictures on yes. Instagram does not is not subject to the same. <laughs> evisceration by this critique as the photographer who then takes those pictures and puts them on their profile page as an exemplar of their work. Oh, wait a minute, though. Wait a Two minute. Two different things. Well, they're almost as, just as bad as each other. I don't know, because the photographer would be rejoicing in the form. You took a picture of your kid in your apartment and want to share that. Okay, great. We understand what the purpose of that picture is and why you would... Why would you, you would want to share that, even if we don't really want to see your kids? We understand that. <laughs> yeah. But you went through all the effort to go out to a blue bonnet field and stick your kid in the blue. What are you, what are you trying to do there? And forget about the professional photographer. Sorry, I sound like I'm accusing you of having done that, Seth. But <laughs> Is it partaking in a cultural tradition sure. of some sort? Yeah, it's a mindless ritual, which is what offends me about it. It is being swayed by that peer group you have been... It is definitely enforcement. It's not a, a formal educational official thing, but it becomes sort of like a social. But why is it mindless ritual? Well, it's, it's the blue bonnets are pretty. They come out. And that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things are pretty. Go take a, go take a picture of your kid next to a pretty thing that no one else has taken a picture. So, next to. so the point of the paragraph I just read is that there's almost something immoral about it. It's analogous to something that's unethical. That's putting a pretty high standard on people. No, I, I'm not agreeing with it necessarily. I'm just saying what I'm trying to get at what's really entailed in this judgment. I'm not saying I necessarily endorse or. <laughs> yeah, let's. I mean, although let, even let's, though I feel it, but I'm not. You're come down in the side of the snobs. Come on. <laughs> let's stop ragging on the families that do it, but continue to rag on the professional photographer who then exhibits those pictures. Just this idea of what's undemanding, or the idea that it's manipulating that it's sort of just pandering to your basest desires without even this talk of childish or primitive that it's not even calling on you as an adult so 
let me harken back a little bit to the Adorno discussion where one of the, the criticisms that Adorno brought to bear was that the culture industry manufactures culture for people that doesn't challenge them. You don't want it to be too difficult to consume your art because the whole point of art is to distract somebody from their miserable existence of repetitious work and long enough that they can get sleep and go back and do it again the next day, right? So it's about the fact that the culture industry creates art that doesn't engage people in a certain way. And it sounds like this is an echo of that. Yeah, Adorno exactly exemplifies the kind of snob that he's objecting to. This could be seen as a response to Adorno, this whole book. And again, I'm not sure that Bourdieu is entirely objecting to this. I mean, I know he's framing this as a critique of this. But anyway, he, you know, he'll go on to say our objection to it is that it's enslaving. It's violence. You know, he'll go on to use that very word, violence. Art is supposed to be freeing. It's supposed to call out something in the free play of your imagination. And these objects are meant to heteronomize you. They're meant to simply make you drool a little bit, let's say. That's what's supposed to be offensive about these things. Just say why that fulfills the word heteronomize. <laughs> Explain your use of that term. No, because it basically it subjugates you to the object of desire. That's the heteronomy. As opposed to autonomy, yes. Gotcha. Instead of being autonomous, yeah, instead of being free, autonomous, independent of the object. And by the way, that's matched by the independence of form and content. So in a true work of art, the form becomes independent of the content. The aesthetic perceiver maintains their autonomy or even has their autonomy enhanced by their experience of the object. And so the ethical parallel there, right, is that the autonomy of making decisions according to the good, according to reason, although in the case of art, it's even more freeing in the sense that it's not the rules of reason you're obeying, it's your own rules. The artist makes the rules. So that's even more freeing in a sense. So the objection here is that instead of doing the very thing that an art object is supposed to do, it tries to subjugate you. I find it interesting that he uses this word violence frequently in the postscript. So I think we ought to take that idea seriously, not just dismiss it as snobbery, you know. No, no, I'm okay with that. Tim, I'm going to throw this back at you. How does this proliferation of repetitious and artistically uninteresting pictures of children in blue bonnet fields subjugate you? How does that mechanism work? I'm going to, I'm no, trying no, no. not to be flip here. I'm trying to actually examine my visceral disgust. It's attempting to subjugate you. It's yeah. not actually subjugating you. Well, I, I, I don't know. I felt, <laughs> I felt pretty impressed. The way I first brought this up is part of what this Bordeaux book did was it made me feel skeptical of that initial impulse of mine. Like I'm just trying to separate myself from the herd and say I have, you know, some aesthetic disposition that makes me better than them. And I should be rightly skeptical of that. But at the same time, I have this feeling. And I guess what it comes from is just this sense that I feel sorry, in a way, for anybody who hired a professional <laughs> photographer. I feel sorry for the kids. I feel sorry for the people who spent money on it. I feel sorry for the photographer who probably had grander ambitions, and yet this is how he's paying the rent. I think I used the phrase mindless repetition before. It feels mindless to me, and that's what bothers me about it. It's like, yes, kids are pretty and fields are pretty, but if you see the same thing a thousand times over and over again, it loses some of its prettiness. Mm. It loses its ability to affect you in the same way. Music is my favorite art form, right? And music in all genres evolves. And one of the reasons it evolves is you can only do the same tricks a certain number of times before they lose their power to affect you anymore. So I think it's the sameness. It's the repetition. And going back to that other word, it's facile. And all of those things depress me. I want more from art and from my fellow man. Well, that seems an excellent point to end our first half on. So 
Thank you for listening. You can get uh, part two. You don't have to wait until next week. You could just go get the citizen version of this right now at partiallyexaminedlife.com. Make your little contribution. Become a PEL citizen. And there you go. And that will distinguish you from the herd. (laughs) All right. Good night. Good night. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, episode 137, part two on Pierre Bourdieu's <laughs> distinction. Last time we introduced his project, this big sociological study where he did a survey of people of different social classes about their musical tastes and what they thought would make a good photograph and all this stuff. And was talking about the differences he was finding in their different ideologies of art between the upper class, art for art's sake, and the sphere of the aesthetic versus the lower class looking everything in terms of its functions, just is it painful, is it ugly? So, Tim, do you feel like current popular musical genres perform the same function culturally that Bourdieu applies to the music and cultural art forms of his day? I think you can take any piece of music, any genre of music, and run a survey and see where it falls. So my short answer is yes. I think they can't help but do it, even if it's not immediately obvious where on the scale one particular piece might fall. Since I've been running music editorial teams for various online music services for over a decade, I am frequently introduced to people in terms of music. I'm like, oh, this guy knows a lot about music and stuff like that. And it's depressing to me how often... I hear a response along the lines of, oh, I like music. I like all types of music except country. Or I like all types of music except hip-hop. Every time I hear that reaction, feels like that person is using a genre, their distaste of a genre as a way of distinguishing themselves from people who do like that type of music. Yeah, that makes sense. I do see one major difference. Here's a quote from page 19. Music is the most, quote, spiritual of the arts, of the arts of the spirit, and the love of music is a guarantee of spirituality. This was in the time that he's reporting on, so it's the 60s when he was doing the survey. Spirituality is associated with upper class, with this built-in superiority. He says later, aristocracies are essentialist, that you're just a better person. Whereas I feel like, I think the working class spirituality is a very big motif that we have going on. You know, the... The spirituals, that's the slaves. How much more working class can you get? It's somebody that actually has no freedom. So they use spirituality as a way, in a way that Bourdieu would very much approve of. Any given class can take on the mantle of spirituality to try to elevate itself beyond the station that's been set up for it by society. Is that, you know, you were trying to hold us down, but we used the spirituality of our music to transcend that. No, they use the spirituality of music to transcend your immediate physical and economic circumstances as a form of relief. But you get education and you read in order to actually overcome those conditions and better yourself, right? I mean, every religious organization, every religious institution has music and iconography in the form of pictorial, Mm -hmm. but not all of them make you read. In fact, a lot of them actively discourage it. Also, when I read that section, I got the distinct sense he was talking specifically about classical music. There's a line in there shortly after where you stopped off where he says, all concerts are sacred. I'm pretty sure he's not talking about Petulia Clark concerts there or Jacques Brel performances. Well, yes, he was saying that music is the pure art par excellence. It says nothing and has nothing to say. (laughs) Ha ha ha!
<laughs> Jacques Brel had a lot to say. Even Petulia Clark had less to say, but she said some things. <laughs> so I thought he was using music less broadly than I am when I'm talking about music. The thing that's always drawn me to music, and I'm not quite sure where this puts me on his scales, is of all art that I've ever encountered, it makes it most easy to forget myself. It has the most easy access to moments of transcendence, to my mind, especially in a concert setting. And, I, and this is for my taste, a rock concert or a soul music setting where, you know, you just get swept up in the moment and the crowd and you stop being you for, you know, very, very brief moments of time. So I don't know if that's sort of mindless, naive appreciation of art or if that's the aesthetic disposition that, you know, separates me from the herd. I'm not sure where that falls in, in Bourdieu's calculus. Did you learn it from somewhere? My short answer to that is no. I mean, maybe I've learned it in group settings because it tends to happen more often in live music than in listening to music. Oddly, and I'm, I say this as an atheist who doesn't listen to a lot of gospel music but loves soul music, which grew out of gospel music. One of the few times I've ever had that experience listening to a piece of recorded music was there's a song on the anthology of American folk music called He Got Better Things For You, which is a spiritual. And it's explicitly about loving Jesus Christ, which is meaningless to me. But the performance itself is, to my mind and my ears, so profound and so moving. Like My wife thought I was losing my mind the first time I heard it because I just kept hitting rewind. And I listened to the song. It's only like a minute and a half or two minutes long. I think I listened to it 50 times in a row because I was just trying to figure out how it was having that effect on me. So I don't know where I'm going with that, but I don't think it's learned. I think it's a thing that happens. Well, I think that's a good question about whether you're in, a, in an aesthetic disposition when you're losing yourself, for instance, in music. And again, I think the question comes down to whether or not that losing oneself is freeing or, again, enslaving in some sense, which there's an well, argument, I think, to be made both ways on that when you're in a Dionysian ecstasy. My position on this is going to be I was not having the aesthetic disposition. I was not analyzing it. It was not an intellectual response. It was some combination of words and melody and timbre. Yeah, I don't think it needs to be an intellectual response, though. I think it just has to be a certain kind of something that it does to your imagination, this kind of freeing thing, as opposed to, you know, if you lost yourself in a Blue Bonnets picture. <laughs> <laughs> I would feel sad. Be suspicious. Let me turn this around for a minute because I want to talk about this as a performer as well. The mm -hmm. goal of my band every night that we were on tour was to achieve those moments, right? Mm -hmm. And you're in this weird position where you are singing the same songs over and over again, just in different locations. So a song that, you know, you thought was great the first hundred times you performed it. It's, <laughs> it's hard to love it as much the 999th time, right? And when you're performing in front of people, again, there's tricks that you develop. There's things that maybe they happen by accident on night one, but the audience responds in a particular way. You start repeating that. And the magic gradually gets drained from those things. And they get drained for you as a performer before they get drained for the audience because you've gone through it more often than any individual listener has. So again, it's just like, I don't have an answer to this. I just know that this was a state we actively tried to achieve, but achieving it meant letting go in a certain way, like mm -hmm. not having a plan and not just following the script. You make a good point that part of what this analysis misses is the performative piece. It assumes that all of the art that's being consumed is somehow static, like an artifact. So what if you listen to three different versions of Blue Danube? three totally different styles, would that make a difference? And that's what I feel like you're hitting on, is that there's an element to music which is performative, 
at least we can think of it that way that that might make a difference. I guess I don't see how that would cause any trouble for Bourdieu. It would be a certain kind of music geek would get into the difference in, in performances of that sort. So I can imagine somebody saying, oh, that's a very pedestrian version of aria from such and such. And you hear that. I went to operas for years, and you would hear conversations, or if you read about opera, like vicious things that people were doing that I thought were transcendent simply because I don't have the ability to do them. And my aesthetic appreciation would be one thing, but for somebody who had a cultured ear would have a very different experience of that exact same performance simply because they were focusing on the performative aspect of it in a way that I didn't have access to. I don't know that that's fundamentally different than why we music snobs dismiss a lot of pop music because it's too similar. You know, basically that is just a crappier version of something that came out 20 years ago. Like we dismissed all of grunge when it came out in the 90s, I and my friends, because it's just like warmed over 70s stuff. It was better when Led Zeppelin did it than when Pearl Jam did it or something. <sighs> And that's almost like saying, wow, this is just an insipid performance of that opera because I've heard nine performances of it and this is on the lower scale. Whereas somebody that's new to, whether it's an actual different piece or just a different variation of the same piece, it's the same kind of uh, jadedness that you get with more and more exposure. There's a legitimate question of originality. Look at it from the point of view of a creator. There's a difference between being truly creative and simply being derivative, simply imitating Led Zeppelin, for instance, because you think it's going to go over once you've recycled it two decades later. So the same thing in a way, and Bourdieu points to this, there's a correlation between the act of the creator and the listener or the, the viewer of an art object who has to sort of recreate imaginatively and recapitulates that creative process. So in other words, if I'm actually not doing something original as an artist, then I'm not really doing something aesthetic to the beholder. And it's not just because it's not, they don't have to know whether or not Led Zeppelin existed, I don't think. They just have to feel out the lack of, I don't know if you could say internally, structurally, there's a, there could be something structurally derivative about a work. I mean, you know, I know it sounds absurd, but you see what I'm getting at. Well, the way that you were describing it is that if somebody's doing something that's not original, then they're doing it sort of in a calculated way. They're not actually feeling it. Oh, this is like Led yeah, Zeppelin. Yeah, it's, yeah. But when people argue about music, a lot of times it's a matter of coming up with different analogies of what music is like. You know, if music is like giving a speech, then of course you don't want to hear the same speech that you've already heard. But if making music is like making love, then like why the does it have to be original? Do you have to have a new position every time? Can't you really get into uh, it, even if it's the same goddamn thing that you've done a thousand times before? Yes. Are, are, are you married? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's different ways to think about originality. Inevitably, there's a repetition and appropriation of what comes before, right? You can't even avoid that. So it's not really about whether or not it repeats the past or draws on the past. It's something else. And I don't know how to say what that is or why listeners might be sensitive to it or whether they could be sensitive to it if they don't have a certain amount of cultural capital and, for instance, know who Led Zeppelin is. Or, But I think originality is certainly relevant. How petty bourgeois <laughs> of you to raise Led Zeppelin as the model. <laughs> oh, we're much beyond that. Well, for me, that is about as high as my culture gets there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one of the things that was disturbing me a little about the way that, Wes, you were asking some of these questions, you know, five, ten minutes ago was you're asking it sort of the test of whether it's good music or not. Is, is this freeing? But it seems like Bourdieu here is giving this meta commentary about 
theorizing about music. But I, I'm just saying by the standards of the aesthetic disposition. I'm not saying I endorse the aesthetic disposition. I'm just saying that... Well, by the standards of Kant. Yes, by this standard, which, yeah, Bourdieu is definitely critiquing. So I guess that's a question, though. The way that he's painting it is that the aesthetic disposition is more or less equivalent to Kant's theory. So it's about being refined, it's about being able to sublimate, it's about not reacting to your initial urges. However, it seems like, just like we were saying, that ideology is in motion. So that if the aesthetic is to one generation equivalent to Kant's theory, it seems like the most snooty people about music say, you know, so I mentioned blues snobs. Mm -hmm. So blues snobs are not Kantian aesthetes. What they like about the blues is that it's so authentic. You can just feel. It reminds me of what Tim was just saying about that old time spiritual. I assume, was it really old timey, <laughs> the song you're talking Oh, it, it was literally recorded in 1927 or 1928 yes. by a, a singer who has eight yeah. recordings to her name. Yeah, but they're not doing what they're saying they're doing there, Mark, right? They're being blues nerds. They have a certain amount of knowledge. So it's not just about the pure disposition towards a work of art. The aesthetic disposition also involves this ability to categorize and to say, to be an aficionado about these things. And so even if you say, yes, it's so authentic, you're making a comment about its relation to a cultural tradition. And do you see what I'm saying? It's not that that's necessarily my raw response to the work of art. It signifies that within a certain context. And you're saying, look, I'm sensitive to the significance of this. And you're using that as sort of a leverage to say you're better than other people, essentially. But I thought that was actually against, in the postscript, the way he describes Kant is Kant is taking the academic's position against both the raw, untutored, but also against the titled nobility. Right. So for Kant, the way he puts it is civilization is bad, but culture is good. <laughs> right. But this is the way the aesthetic disposition though manifests itself. I mean, not everyone is a scholar, but the aesthetic disposition still reigns culturally, right? But don't you think that what you were saying is, oh, you have to know how to classify it to say it's this kind of blue, like that could, if you take a strictly Kantian point of view that right. it's putting yourself in the aesthetic mode, paying attention to the form, then talking about the classification is just as irrelevant to that. In fact, that's the sort of snootiness of the hereditary aristocracy. Right. That's true. That but it's wants still, to, is even to. in that degraded form, though, it's a manifestation of the aesthetic disposition. I mean, they're not doing it right. They're not living up to the Kantian <laughs> purity. But it very certainly is a manifestation of the aesthetic disposition, I think. It's not simply vulgarity. It's in the other direction. So I kind of brought this up to try to address Tim's question about when you're at a concert and you're really getting into it and you lose your sense of self. That sounds like you're doing what Kant wants you to do, that you're entering the aesthetic mode and you're becoming disinterested. You're losing, just like Schopenhauer explicitly recommends, you're losing your sense of self right. to become the pure knowing subject, right. the pure free-floating subject. But that's exactly what Adorno described in our previous thing as the ultimate in barbarity, that when you're in a group in a concert, you're watching a too much joy show and you're all kind of drunk and you're yelling and singing in unison with the stuff and you're getting it like that that is the ultimate in barbarity. That is not real solidarity, in fact. So if, as I think, Adorno is a really accurate representation of the Kantian snootiness, then there are different... Well, I, so what, I guess what yeah. I'm saying is that there are different arguments you could make, different aesthetic theories, one of which could say, yeah, the audience in the Too Much Joy show, feeling solidarity, that's exactly what we should be shooting for. And just that these different aesthetic theories are each motivated by a different social class agenda. 
I think there's two different kinds of losing yourself, or maybe I'm fooling myself, but I think there's a, everybody throwing their fist in the air and chanting along with the band exactly the way the band wants them to. <laughs> I agree. That's the height of barbarity. That's different <laughs> than you as an individual not getting swept up in mimicking everything else the crowd is doing, but just getting outside of your brain for a couple of seconds in a more sublime way where you're not being directed to do that. It's just happening. What if I just dance really awkwardly and self-consciously at the edge of the crowd? <laughs> if you're self-conscious, it's not happening. You yeah. want to be unconscious. Right. I think you're making a good point there. And I think we discussed this in the Schopenhauer episode as well. I, th I think this is a tricky question because even though Schopenhauer is all about the whole Kantian idea that you, you free yourself and you escape from the will and from desire, that's what the aesthetic experience does to you. On the other hand, there's an argument to be made that losing yourself, you're sort of suddenly beholden to the object outside of you, right? In a way that is actually servile and not freeing. So when you lose yourself on the dance floor, is that the ultimate freedom or is that the ultimate servility? And that's what's unclear to me. I can't remember exactly what conclusion we came to in the Schopenhauer episode, but I know, I know we discussed it. I think the conclusion is that worrying about that problem signifies there's something wrong with you. <laughs> That's, that's what really? Oh, that's bad news for me because my band devoted an entire album, a concept album to this exact topic. Really? Yeah, it was called Topless at the Arco Arena and it was spurred by a moment I had at an ACDC show that I went to. I'm not a fan of ACDC. I went more for the weirdness value than anything else. And there's a moment in the show that apparently is recapitulated every night. They have the song called The Jack that's about a stripper or something. And every night during that performance, I didn't know this at the time, they're playing the song and, you know, there's giant jumbotron showing the crowd and the band and the camera people keep zooming in on different attractive women who are dancing to the song. And it's like they're searching the crowd trying to find the right one. And then eventually they do find one who at this sort of penultimate moment in the song rips off her top. And then all of a sudden she's topless at the Arco Arena in Sacramento on the jumbotrons. And when I first saw it, I didn't know it was a thing that happened every goddamn night when they do this goddamn song. I was just like struck. I was like, okay, wait a minute. I have no idea what just happened. Was that a beautiful moment of abandon where that fan was just like totally liberated and, you know, caught up in the moment and it was this beautiful thing? Or was it a horrible thing where she was manipulated by the band to do exactly what they wanted her to do at that moment? I don't know what the answer is to that question. In the ACDC case, the fact that it happens every single night and the camera people know to look for, you know, and apparently have learned how to find the right person, and I was pretty sure she wasn't a plant, suggests she was being servile in a is not it, so great way. Is it performance um, art or is it sexual assault? So yeah, a, exactly. A fine line. I, and, 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 I mean, and it's possible that for her, it was one thing, whereas for me, it was another. So, Tim, you have now picked out the song that's going to go at the end of this <laughs> episode. We'll put that Wonderlick song of the woman that takes off her oh, shirt. Oh, when she took off her shirt. And it's okay. a very good one. <laughs> Sorry, I was not trying to self-promote here. We have to have a but song I, for the end of every I do, episode. I do wrestle with these issues in real life. You are permitted to self-promote. We invited you as a guest, so <laughs> feel free. So, Wes, I think if I was to answer your question from my own experience, I would say that liberating or servile, it's reactionary. So, you know, music, I think in a lot of respects, particularly when I was younger, the bands I liked were expressing a certain kind of reaction to a dominant culture or to a political situation or something like that. And so... Seth was a metalhead. Let's just be clear about I was, it. Right? No, no, I had two. I was a metalhead, but I also liked punk. 
So, Mark, when you were talking about Barbarous earlier, I was remembering this Rock Against Racism show that I went to see Bad Brains in Portland, Oregon in like 1987. And it was essentially a riot. I mean, it was like a giant quasi-political riot with metal detectors outside and fistfights and a mass of people inside. And it was not in any way, shape, or form. Like, if you were involved in that thing, you were part of something greater than yourself, for sure. And I've had that experience at, you know, Ramones concerts and metal concerts as well. Uh, (laughs) But that kind of music doesn't exist if it's not articulating some experience that some group is having in reaction to the dominant culture. And you participate in that, whether you're a member of that dominant culture that's appropriating it like me, or whether you're legitimately from that. And so is it servile? I mean, I, I don't know that those words work in this context necessarily, but there's no doubt that lacking that thing against which you can respond, you would not be there. It's not like an authentic or spontaneous transcendent expression that you're supposed to get out of pure reflection or no mind or whatever else. Well, I think the word you use, participate, is kind of a good segue because Mm. he associates what he calls the popular aesthetic with, quote unquote, a deep rooted, this is page 32, deep rooted demand for participation, which formal experiments systematically disappoints. So this is one of the, between the popular or vulgar art forms, they allow a kind of participation, which in its purest form, the aesthetic disposition doesn't allow. I mean, so I think according to, to this standard, it's the idea of being part of a an audience for music where you sort of lose yourself. I, I'm not sure if it fits in exactly. No, that fits in very well. I was yeah. say, the Bad Brains example fascinates me because the most formative musical moment for me as a teenager, I think I was 13 actually, was when a needle dropped on the first Clash album. And I'd just been happily, you know, a member of the Columbia Record House before that. And, you know, I had all the records that all my peers had. Like, I had all my Kiss records. I had all my Aerosmith records. I had a bunch of Neil Diamond records. It was all just this undifferentiated bass to me. If it was hooky, I liked it. And after I heard that first Clash record for the first time, it literally, for about five or six, maybe ten years, became impossible for me to listen to all that stuff that I used to enjoy uncritically. And... I don't think I was middle brow before and suddenly became high class through that. I think it was to me, this was just like a purely aesthetic thing. This type of music and the the anger, you know, I wasn't a part of the political movement. I could not decipher a thing that Joe Strummer was saying. You know, I'd read a couple of articles about punk rock, but to me, it was really just the art form. It was this, the pure sonic assault of it. It sounded meaningful and real and truthful and honest in a way that everything else suddenly seemed like a sham. There was nothing beyond the music itself driving me to that conclusion. So I've been trying to figure out, you know, as I've read things like Bordeaux, trying to second guess myself in that moment. You know, maybe I, I'm, I'm clinging to romantic adolescent notions of purity and stuff like that. But I really do feel a sociological or philosophical analysis isn't going to get at the heart of what happened to me when I heard that music. Bordeaux's big point in here is that the normal way that we talk about aesthetics is a radical denial of the social that whatever your particular story is, it's going to have that same form that you just recounted, which is you having an isolated experience, whereas he doesn't fill in the gaps. Again, he said about Kant's theory as a whole, yes, you could recognize his sociological origin, but that's not the same as dismissing it. But it sounds like I'm just not sure how those things fit together, how you could both retain the authentic 
experience that you just had, but yet somehow give a sociological account of that. And that's going to deepen your understanding of yourself. Yeah. For me, the sociology came after right? You know, that record led to a bunch of others. And the fact that I liked those and wore particular buttons meant I, sh I couldn't wear other t-shirts that I used to wear um, or that I shouldn't. I'm not denying the existence of any of that stuff or the fact that, you know, I was self-identifying and I was distinguishing myself from another cast. That all did happen, but it didn't happen in that moment when I was first listening to the music. Right. But Bourdieu, I think, is committed to the position that your reaction is explained by your being conditioned in a certain way by your social class, among other things, the particulars of your upbringing, such that you would react in that way to that, you know, whether it's, I'm just going out on a limb here, but it sounds like your reaction was in a way about the energy, about the anger, so that something about the role that a certain kind of anger, a certain kind of release had in I don't know, you could say it's rebelling against what was going on, but I feel like that we in the first world here, when we have a rock and roll rebellion, it's not because you know we have 1950s parents who are super uptight or something like that. It's because we have a certain, you know, like part of play might be running around and screaming or whatever. And so then once you hit age 13, you're probably not running around and screaming as you're playing tag in that way. So maybe the embrace of this kind of music is a sublimation of that, that feeling that used to be in your life that you has been by getting, going into puberty, by going into manhood has been cut off. And now you're, I don't know this, I'm just making this crap up. Not every reaction is necessarily, or the whole of the reaction is analyzed according to these class distinctions or material conditions. And especially, so we're assuming that, that any, what we would call aesthetic experience is a, is the aesthetic disposition, which in fact is not the case. The aesthetic disposition he's talking about is a very strict, pure, pleasure, Kantian idea. In fact, on uh, page 32, he says something like, since the Renaissance, art is a systematic refusal of all that is human. And then he goes on to the sort of the sense in which the aesthetic is the denial of animality and pleasure and gratification and all those things, which is not something we typically associate when we're talking about our everyday, ordinary aesthetic experiences. So first and foremost, it's when we're talking about that particular kind of snobby aesthetic attitude that we are talking about cultural conditioning. And when we talk about, say, a lower class, just simply primal response to gratifying works of art or music, gratifying music or, or whatever, that's not the aesthetic disposition. And I don't think it's as culturally conditioned. I think it's rawer and more instinctive, more quote-unquote animal. Although, I mean, we'd have to make the caveat there that Bourdieu will say that even that sort of supposedly naive response of the lower class towards these objects gets conditioned once they become aware of the condescension of the upper class, right? So it could become part and parcel of your love of something that it's a fuck you to the upper class, that it's a reaction against, for instance. So it's not simply naive, but it's definitely much closer to naive than the aesthetic disposition. Yeah, and there's that part around, I have the, the PDF page number, so, which is 48. I don't know what the actual page number is in the book, but he's quoting somebody else, Ortega, who I don't know. Ortega y Gasset. Oh, yes, okay. the, every time he gets talks about uh, <laughs> uh, real snobbishness, he quotes this book. I'm going to have to track that down. Yeah, and it's an amazing quote. He says, wait, but he's talking about unpopular or anti-popular art. And the curious sociological effect it produces by dividing the public into two antagonistic castes, those who understand and those who do not. 
This implies, Ortega goes on, that some possess an organ of understanding which others have been denied, that these are two distinct varieties of the human species. The new art is not for everyone, like romantic art, but destined for an especially gifted minority. And he ascribes to the humiliation and obscure sense of inferiority inspired by this art of privilege, sensuous nobility, instinctive aristocracy, the irritation it arouses in the masses. Yep. That's page 31, by the way. Mm. To kind of follow up on that and, and to bring in what Wes was talking about, on page 34 of the book, which I have as a PDF, and the page numbers on mine, Tim, are, are included. So it's 51. Sorry, PDF. 51 of the anyway. PDF, page 34. Aesthetic distancing. This popular reaction, he's talking about the participation that Wes meant, is the very opposite of the detachment of the aesthete, who, as is seen whenever he appropriates one of the objects of popular taste, introduces a distance or a gap, the measure of his distant distinction vis-a-vis first-degree perception by displacing the interest from the content. Detachment, disinterestedness, indifference, aesthetic theory has so often presented these as the only way to recognize the work of art for what it is, autonomous, self-standing, that one ends up forgetting what they really mean is disinvestment, detachment, indifference. In other words, the refusal to invest oneself and to take things seriously. That resonates for me because I'm sitting beneath a Roy Lichtenstein print. <laughs> so if, if we take seriously this idea that what Wes was drawing parallels to the Kantian aesthetic theory that requires a disinterestedness in order to fully grasp as opposed to an enjoyment, is what he's trying to say that this aesthetic distancing is what gets acculturated at the high level and at the level of high culture, and that it itself is still a posture. It's still something that's produced out of the economic circumstances, but there must be some inherent advantage to taking this position versus participation versus investment and that his perception of Kant, which shows up in the um, postscript, is really that Kant was just articulating his point of view of, of aesthetics from this position of somebody who is getting full advantage of the economic and ideological structure of the society he was living in. By page 40, because there's a sort of one of his uh, intervening things, pages 36 to... 40, but he sort of gives a conclusion, which is that nothing more rigorously distinguishes classes than the ability to take the aesthetic point of view. So this ability to take that aesthetic point of view, that is a marker. It's, you know, in the same way that clothing might be a marker or other sorts of attitudes. It tells you who's upper class and who's lower class, and it reinforces to the lower class. I mean, if you want to look at it in terms of ideology, just going back to Marx, right? The whole point of the upper class ideology is that this is natural and unchangeable, right? You were sort of born to be lower class and I was born to be upper class. And you could see this as sort of feeding into that, right? So you don't know what's good and bad according to this aesthetic disposition. You're just not cultured. So you belong where you are. And if you knew more or were better educated, then maybe it would be different. And the ideological part of that, of course, is it's not really, and this is part of the point of the whole book, is that it's not actually about education except in the broader sense of just being keyed in to knowing the things you're supposed to appreciate and things you're not supposed to appreciate. You know, it doesn't mean you're, you have to become an art historian or that you have to actually know something about philosophy or literature. It's not that class divisions wouldn't exist unless you had this sort of 
distinction, but this distinction marks those class distinctions and then it reinforces them and it provides the ideology that reinforces them by making them seem somehow inevitable. Mm -hmm. And uh, interestingly, so you mentioned that stopping on page 40, I saw a quote in there, women in the survey were much more likely to manifest their repugnance toward repugnant, horrible or distasteful objects. Men are ex officio on the side of culture, whereas women, like the working class, are on the side of nature. As well as seeing this Kantian snobbishness as particularly related to some aristocratic take, you could also extend that to, you know, where are women and minorities in here, you know, as opposed to just just social mm -hmm. class here, that even women, he does, I think, go on about at this at, at some length at one point, but, uh, you know, that since they've been denied opportunities, even within their class, they sort of take revenge uh, <laughs> by taking on this uh, contrary yeah, I guess it's it's kind of like, you know, the younger generation rebelling against the older one, that all these things are just used as, as a way of, of social one-upmanship wherever you happen to be in the right. pecking order. Let's see, on page 34, the, the popular aesthetic, he characterizes, it's not just a matter of being naive or something, but it's a refusal of the refusal, which is mm -hmm. the starting point of the high aesthetic. That the popular aesthetic is sort of has this inferiority <laughs> right. complex about itself or a rebellion about itself that is a refusal of a refusal. He gets to that later, actually. That's on 41, where he talks about the rebellion part, I think. So page 40, the second full paragraph of the test would lead one to describe as a deficiency is also a refusal which stems from the denunciation of the arbitrary or ostentatious gratuitousness of stylistic exercises or purely formalistic experiments. So here he's saying when, you know, he does his experiments where he's having people respond, it's not just that they're naively responding, they're refusing the refusal, they're rejecting the sort of nihilism or the, yeah, nihilism is actually the right word, they're, you know, of the aesthetic disposition, the sense in which it abstracts to, to form over content. And there's a great quote from one of the responses in there. I tell you, there are some people who don't know what to do with their time. <laughs> exactly. Well, and so this might be one of the changes that's happened over time, because I feel like the snobbish art for art's sake, experimental art thing has become less dominant, less respected, such that the working class aesthetic now is not so clearly, you know, if, if you say it's, I don't know, a love of, of ACDC or, or Thomas Kincaid, I don't think it's as vitriolic against i don't think it has that perceived sense of inferiority now that maybe is in the survey group that he's working with because they just don't think about classical music geeks and reacting to that like it's just an irrelevant to their lives well i think we're all aware of a distinction though between high and low culture i mean popular culture at least you know just thinking about america today is completely dominant and i think you're right it's enjoyed without shame without a sense of inferiority towards something higher. But we all learned about the higher stuff in school, and we all know it exists. And I think we still understand the popular culture is defined against that. I actually want to go back to movies and Academy Awards because I think what you see with the Academy Awards is sort of like a distillation of middle-brow taste because exactly. there's really, really popular movies that you know maybe one will get nominated for Best Picture. And then there's really, really arty movies, maybe one. Like I'd say boyhood sort of made it in last year, right? Might make it in. But mostly what's getting valorized there is stuff that sort of signifies that it's important and meaningful, but isn't actually doing it, right? It's about slavery. <laughs> exactly. It must be important. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. Birdman won, right? 
um, which I, I actually like that movie. But uh, <laughs> but I see what I, I was going to say. I love that, Birdman, but people hate it. Yeah. Or, or not people, critics, a certain strain of critics yeah. despise that movie. They think it's a self-conscious artist talking about art. To me, it was just a really good dramatization of self-loathing and that, you know, everybody has that voice inside their head or everybody I like anyway has that voice inside their head telling them they suck. Yeah. Um, and seeing yeah. that represented on screen was pretty powerful to me. I took the Adorno reading. I thought the fact that it had elements of the fantastic which went unexplained and an ambiguous ending without like the neat put a little bow on it, that it was too challenging and that that was disturbing to people. I, I mean, in a way, we are all petty bourgeois now. This is what the point I was getting towards is that <laughs> we are we have a massive middle class, you know, relatively well educated. We know about these distinctions. We know um, the sun also rises is supposed to be a great novel that's been inculcated in, in us. But we're still going to watch Game of Thrones, and in many cases, people will, you know, if you look at critics online and people talk as if Game of Thrones is sort of high art. It's really interesting to me which of course it's not <laughs> well compared to compared to the alternatives compared to two broke girls <laughs> so with movies i mean if you were thinking purely about the aesthetics take a movie like rosemary's baby in the 70s that movie is actually and that's by roman polanski if you go back and watch some of these these older films, it's remarkable how much more focused they are on the aesthetic, even than films that are supposed to be kind of arty today. In a way, that's a much artier movie than even a lot of indie movies today. It's simply more focused on things that we, we would typically think of as aesthetic. So we're all kind of confused about high and low now. And if we go back to the Adorno conversation, there's a sense in which they're, they're getting mixed together. They're getting fused. I think that we've learned something about irony <laughs> that he doesn't get. So in this, in this quote you already read about aesthetic distancing, when he appropriates one of the objects of popular taste, for instance, Westerns or strip cartoons, he introduces a distance, a gap. So that, you know, that says to me irony. That seems to me right. hipster irony. Now, the way that he characterizes it is, oh, it's attention to the form, the specifically artistic effects, which are only appreciated relationally through a comparison with other works. So in that way, I was thinking of like Blood Meridian, like when somebody like Cormac McCarthy takes on the Western, he's not doing just a trashy Western. He's doing like an, an yeah. arty Western that only sort of makes sense because you're thinking about other Westerns, the existence of the trashy ones. But I think Cormac McCarthy is a good example of somebody who is really not ironic. <laughs> like he's taking on these things, but then this is a Kurt Vonnegut quote. If you pretend to be something long enough, that's what you become. So if you like disco, ironically, and you listen to a lot of disco, ironically, dude, you like disco. There's no, there's no difference. I think No Country for Old Men is a good example because it's McCarthy is very focused on the craft of writing and on being an artist. There's no doubt about it and being a poet in a way. It's also very plot driven. It provides all those gratifications, which high art in a way is not supposed to provide. So I don't know where you put something like that, where you put this hybrid kind of object that has artistic pretensions but is also tickling your fancies at every turn so well that's funny that makes me think of something i just read about the movie version of that no country for old men i'm in a phase now where i'm re-watching every coen brothers movie because they actually just get mm. even better on the second and the third viewing 
And No Country for Old Men was always sort of at the top of my list for them. And I've been reading, you know, so they, they just had another movie come out. It's become a thing now to rank Cone Brothers movies. And what's amazing, when you look at different critics' rankings of Cone Brothers moving, there's no consensus. They've made over 15 movies and all but two of them have an equal shot at showing up in anybody's top five. Huh. It's kind of amazing. But one thing that I was struck by was, you know, there was fewer people had No Country for Old Men in their top five than I would have anticipated. And so as I saw some people discussing this, I saw somebody had a line on Twitter. They said, No Country for Old Men, a great movie that is not a great Cone Brothers movie. And what I think they were saying by that was that it was too normal. And with the Cone brothers, you expect them to be more ironic and more distanced from their material mm. than they were in that one. Interesting. It's not funny enough. It's not darkly. Yeah. But in talking about irony, I, you know, I yeah. do think in the late 70s, all through the 80s and into the 90s, irony was the prevailing way in America anyway that people spoke, at least of a certain class. You know, and I think David Letterman was the great maybe instigator or example of that. And I feel like from the late 90s on, we've been slowly getting away from that, right? You see somebody like David Foster Wallace, who was sort of like, you know, opposed to irony, even though it was a language he could speak. And I would argue now that like, if you look at Stephen Colbert, what amazes me about him is, again, he can speak that language, but he's talking deeply and sincerely about his Catholic faith. He's being very non-ironic in a lot of ways. And I, I just feel like the, the culture has, you know, it hasn't done a 180. It's sort of evolved, right? It, it learned how to speak ironically. And now it's no longer the default mode of communication, but it's part of the toolbox. Because I am from the irony generation. I impose, I'm finding in some of these music interviews that I'm talking to people so the guy from Mercury Rev, I just had a conversation with and their music is very symphonic. And he, you know, was explicitly like I was raised on Disney. So like there's large elements of like Disney magic in it. And as an adult, as a 50 year old something guy, how could you not like, yes, OK, I'm taking Disney, but I'm using it ironically. I'm using it. But like he's so he's the least ironic person yeah. I've ever spoken to. And I kind of got the same thing with the guy from Cutting Crew. You know, this 80 stuff for me, that's kind of a guilty pleasure. It's something that I really enjoyed when I was 16. I wasn't into the clash. I liked Chicago. I liked Cutting Crew. I like these cheesy things. But I now am an adult enough that like, no, I actually just kind of like them. I don't have to feel bad about it. But I still, when talking to him, like, you know, as the constructor, if you've written a song called Reach for the Sky, Make It to Heaven, there's got to be some irony there. And, like, and he just had to point out, like, well, look, most of the people that listen to this, this is an international hit. Most of them don't even speak English as their present language. So while you might hear sort of the dark elements in it, and, the, you know, there's definitely a little of that going on there and some complexity in the band thoughts about it. But it is what it is. It's an inspirational <laughs> song. It's not ironic. And that sounds like a picture of kids in blue bonnets to me. <laughs> Perhaps. I would say there's a difference between you listening to that in your car on your commute to your white-collar, middle-class job and being drunk in a karaoke bar, Mark. Two different experiences. <laughs> Maybe. That would be too participatory for me to be in the karaoke <laughs> Maybe one person can, in two different circumstances, have both an aesthetic distance as well as a participatory. Well, actually, that yeah, Schopenhauer sort of alludes to that, right? In his metaphor of someone, you know, the, an experience of listening to music as falling from a tall place while looking at the time on a clock tower or something like that. So the idea that you can be completely participating in the experience and yet disinterested and distant from it at the same time. I always feel like some of these things. You know, like I don't get into crowds. I don't think that's a function of my snobbiness. I think that's a matter of my general discomfort with people. 
so that I'm much more comfortable losing myself in the privacy of my own home than in, you know, a giant stadium listening to Pink Floyd. When I'm in a giant stadium listening to Pink Floyd, the people next to me singing irritate me. They don't make me lose myself in the music. Have you heard of drugs and alcohol, Mark? <laughs> I guess that's the missing ingredient from that's my That's the life. only reason yes. any of those other people can tolerate each other as well. <laughs> well, man, talk, talk about different people having different experiences with the same aesthetic object. When the Flaming Lips and Wilco and Slater Kinney played a New Year's Eve concert at Madison Square Garden, my wife and I were excited. And we never thought the Flaming Lips would ever sell out the garden. So we took our daughter, who was, I think, 10 at the time, to the show. And so the Flaming Lips are on and they have this bit where, you know, they have giant beach balls and they're, you know, there's thousands of them and they're going out and in front of, over the crowd and so everybody's knocking these beach balls around which is a very ironic thing in and of itself except people are then like experiencing it non-ironically these people behind us are clearly tripping their brains out right and i'm there with my 10 year old daughter and so anytime a beach ball comes really really close to us the people who are tripping their brains out are like oh 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 like they're all excited they're gonna get it and then it goes away and they don't get it right and so eventually one of the beach balls come and my daughter grabs it and she hears the people behind her who are tripping all sad like as only tripping people can be sad that they didn't get the beach ball and she turns to me and she goes daddy can i give this to the people behind me and i was like i think they would like that very very much she gave them the beach ball and they were ecstatic it was so wonderful anyway i'm not quite sure why i brought up that anecdote but it seemed it seemed relevant did they hallucinate blue bonnets in her vicinity? <laughs> <laughs> i bet they could have explained to me why the blue bonnets were beautiful and wonderful and i shouldn't be so cynical Let's just, I think what we're getting at is trying to untangle, yes, okay, Bourdieu has identified at a specific point in time that this Kantian take on aesthetics as a pure experience and distance from practical necessity lined up with a class distinction at that time. I'm not sure that it has to. Like there's a natural, you know, the fact that I'm not working for a living, so I have time to spend all this time freaking contemplating art. And, you know, he goes into a lot of detail on people acquiring paintings and sort of what that means and just going to museums, all this kind of thing that you can't do if you have to work all the time. So, yeah, there's a natural fit between these two things. But one of the ways he characterizes that is just having an extended adolescence, you know, and he says, like, look, the children, especially of the rich, get to, in some ways, that continues throughout their lives. This is like one of the, the cultural shifts he's pointing out, that one of the things between the old and the young is actually even just these battles over what constitutes adulthood is one of these conflicts that's going on. And I just feel like, you know, maybe because we're in that next generation at this point that you don't have to be an aristocrat to feel okay wasting time at this point. <laughs> There's a lot of strata of society which are, I don't know, maybe it's even compatible with being, you know, a working class person with this purposefully childlike approach to at least popular music. Don't you think if you did a study today on the difference between, say, the taste of Donald Trump supporters or the taste of lower class and working class, say, white Americans and people who read the Atlantic Monthly or the New Yorker or something like that, don't you think those two things would be vastly different, the types of books they read and music they listen to and so on and so forth? They would. I just don't think it's going to line up in quite the way he's talking about neatly that one of those groups would be Kant. No, but I'm not, it doesn't have to work that way, though. It's just that that's an ideal. You know, the Kantian aesthetic is a sort of limit, mm -hmm. and some things are much farther away from it than others. And, and even, you know, again, th even looking at middle brow taste, you can see the imprimatur of the 
of the aesthetic disposition, right? Because they're yearning, you know, middle brow culture is yearning towards something at the very least. So uh, films with artistic pretensions that don't necessarily succeed, for instance, are really just popcorn movies dressed up with a little bit of artsiness so that we don't feel so bad about enjoying them. Things like that. You still see this principle functioning because otherwise there simply wouldn't be any distinctions between different types of entertainment. We simply wouldn't make those distinctions and no one would ever feel the need to dress up a film in a certain way or things like that. Dress up NASCAR <laughs> in a certain way. I mean, the most powerful thing to me from the book is that all taste is basically defined in opposition to something. And those somethings may not map as precisely onto different social classes here in America in 2016 as they did in France in 1968. But that to me is, is the fundamental lesson is that, is that the thing you think you are liking positively, there's also a negation that's going on there. And sussing out what that is can tell you a lot about yourself as well as the work. And also that your tastes are expressions of class and status and position. Yeah. Inevitably so. Yeah, but I think what Mark was saying, and I'm trying to echo and twist a little bit, is that the way Bordeaux was defining class may not apply today. And it may be, I agree, Trump supporters probably have different musical and movie and art tastes and book tastes than I do. But a lot of those people may be in my same social class, and there may be different vectors on which we're distinguishing ourselves from one another. Yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated, and it was complicated 40 years ago as well. It's not going to be nice and neat. Point is that when someone picks up Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections, and they say, oh, I'd love that book. What does that mean? It means a lot more than, oh, I just really happen to enjoy this. The enjoyment is predicated on these class distinctions. You couldn't enjoy that book unless it were partly a way of expressing class distinction. Although it's funny how ambiguous that is because he himself, like, oh, it got picked up by the Oprah book club. He's a huge snob himself, which is <laughs> ironic because he could be accused of being somewhat <laughs> middle brown. He has literary aspirations, let's put it that way. I just but, think in the U.S. that there may be more interesting distinctions than just class. Class is among them, but I think there, there may be others. Well, I think class is actually interestingly ignored in the United States. It's amazing yeah. how little uh -huh. it's talked about. And I think that's very, very telling. And that it's something that people, for instance, have had to talk about with the whole Trump phenomenon. They've been forced to talk about it. And I think political uprisings like that are a reflection of a certain myopia. So class is, I think, an enormous actually factor in the United States. And we like to pretend that it's not. He has some kind of perennial observations here. And one of which is that the standard that you set out, you know, which he thinks is based on the way you've been brainwashed, essentially, the way that you've been brought up in your education level, you project is universal. And so, yeah, anybody that does not try to fulfill that or that falls short of that or whatever just gets cast as, even if you don't call it low class, you're putting them in some other category of human being. Yeah. So again, with the saying, I like the corrections, the universal thing there is pretending that it's just a matter of universal aesthetic judgment or even one's own personal judgment. When in fact, implicit in that judgment, you're positioning yourself and you're saying, I like a certain type of novel. I know what good novels are and I'm willing to put up with a lot of verbiage in order to get through that thing <laughs> instead of just reading The Hunger Games. So there's all sorts of communications going on in that preference. So I ruined that because I listened to that as an audiobook, And so I have my lowbrow way of, uh, of getting a handle. And it was because, you know, so many people talk about it and I enjoyed it just fine. But, you know, obviously I didn't do the work. That's right. So you undid the cultural capital you might have gained there. You lost it. Which makes reading that book pointless, by the way, if you can't get any cultural capital. <laughs>
So we should uh, get a little into the postscript because it gives us a direct way to analyze what we ourselves are doing. That this is not all just about art. It's not just about music, certainly, although, you know, music is, it's the most spiritual of arts, we are saying. It's a paradigm case of a lot of the points he's arguing here. But philosophy itself, saying earlier that Kant's particular critique is, again, not just an aristocratic one, but is saying that it's the learned, it's the scholars over and above either the other classes, either the low classes or the titled aristocracy knows where it's at. His description of this Kantian aesthetic as ascetic, it's this empty pleasure, which implies the renunciation of pleasure, pleasure purified of pleasure, predisposed to become a symbol of moral excellence, Wes, you were telling us before how this goes into why do we read books like this? Why is it satisfying to do this kind of podcast? So, so much of it seemed to apply very directly to this. Uh, I don't think I do this because it makes me feel superior, <laughs> but it is as a philosopher, this set of texts is our cultural capital. Just some of the things he yeah. was describing about the pleasure of the text. What's Nietzsche's response to the question of the ascetic, right? Why are people ascetic? It's powerful. It's power. I should say, in our late teen years, we did not get enough, and so we became scholarly as a compensation. No, but I mean that seriously, though. The sense in which it's will to power, as masochistic as it might seem, you know, reading hard stuff and thinking about it and talking about it in your spare time, it is work and it is a pain in the ass sometimes. (laughs) But, you know, the gratification you get at the other end of it, there are things like, for instance, a sense of mastery. There's the sense of power and being able to talk about these things. I don't know where the thrill of the pleasure of learning and how you analyze that, but that might also have something to do with power. But you see what I'm saying? It's different than mere gratification, because if I were going for mere gratification, I would just put on basketball and eat ice cream. So, Tim, you seem to be a slightly different kind of snob than we are who do this podcast all the time. What is the equivalent of that in your own life? Oh, I wish I had a snappy answer. I don't, though. There's a lot of this sort of work ethic, strangely ascetic behavior in my own music listening as a music nerd. For me, jazz is an area where I usually feel lost. I listen to more music than the average person, but less music than the average aficionado of a particular genre. So my jazz collection is, you know, maybe it's 15 records, right? It's like mostly Coltrane and a little bit of Miles Davis and some Don Cherry and one or two random things. And I always feel like I should do more work there (laughs) so that I could appreciate the music more. But when it comes to music, I tend to prefer stuff that I just get instantly, you know? So maybe you're not the same kind of masochist (laughs) in any area. It may just be my aesthetic, but I highly recommend this for other music fans out there. If you want a genre that is instantly rewarding and almost bottomless, I've been on this classic soul binge for the last four or five years, and I haven't gotten to the bottom of it yet. It's music that, especially if you're a rock fan, it's not quite as predictable and repetitive as blues, but there's a couple of different forms within it that you will recognize as you hear them over and over again, but people do different things with them. And, you know, apart from the giant hits that everybody thinks of when they think of soul, It was a genre that for years and years subsisted on independent labels where people mostly didn't put out LPs, they just put out singles. So there's lots of crate digging to be done, and there's all kinds of fantastic compilations of, you know, different labels that had very brief lives. And for me, I found it's a way of 
scratching this aesthetic itch that I have to discover new stuff. I mean, it's not new in the sense of it just came out today, but stuff I hadn't heard before that hits all the markers I need from something that feels like it's an authentic communication of somebody's emotion. It strikes me the same way that first Clash record did. So that's an area where it's not so much masochism because it's very rare that I take a chance on some soul compilation CD and don't find two or three tracks to just love. And then I have to find everything else at that particular singer ever did. Yeah, I guess when I'm saying masochism, I really am almost taking the point of view of somebody who doesn't really get it or taking a point of view that I sometimes feel that even the most dense work of Hegel or something, it's quite different than just reading a lot of actually painful (laughs) philosophy. I mean, I could find self-help books or something like that that would just actually hurt me to read. We do find something honestly enjoyable. It's not merely the sense of accomplishment. It's that like, wow, this guy is such a freaking master of his craft. So the difference between reading something like this and then just reading a page turner or some thriller that has no redeeming aesthetic value, which would be immediately accessible and easy, there's supposed to be some sort of educational component to this, right? It expands you and it falls under the category of power where you gain some of these things. And of course, the ideas themselves are inherently interesting. There's that thrill of learning something new and reading something by someone who's made connections that you didn't make and sort of acquiring those and enjoying those ideas. But I think that arguably still falls within this ascetic realm and this idea of mastery and power. Being gratified by an idea is not like being gratified by ice cream. (laughs) So it's much closer to the aesthetic disposition. There's a spot in Bordeaux, and I can't remember the specific example he was using, but it was the notion of reading, you know, you could be a dilettante who is reading some popular science book, and then you wanted to go, I don't think he was talking about DNA, but it's like, and then all of a sudden you're talking about DNA and evolution, you know, with some molecular biologist, and you're immediately outclassed, and you know, and you're, you're made a fool of instantaneously. Does anyone remember what that example was? Yeah, that's the autodidacticism yeah. section. Yeah, in this conversation, I'm that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Seth is the guy. Come on. That's Seth's role. No, I'm. Was this a masochistic exercise for you, or did you like it? No, I liked it. It's hard to read. Yeah, it's unnecessarily hard to read. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, who knows if it's unnecessary, if it's translation or whatever, but the sentence structure is complicated. Well, he he comments on that in the beginning. He says, look, I'm going to use long, complicated sentences, and it's going to sound very French, but that's just the direction I'm going in. (laughs) because I am French. I thought it rewarded the effort they put into it. Are are we doing closings? Because I feel like I'm about to give one. Sure. Um, I want to echo what Tim said earlier about difference between music and some of these other art forms, but I'd like to throw something out there. Just coincidentally, I received a copy of my college news magazine for March. I went to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and they have a magazine, a Reed magazine that came out. And the cover story says, Patterns of Power, How Fashion Reveals the Hidden Hierarchies of Society. Kismet? I, I don't know. There's a part of me that wanted to go into a discussion. I think fashion is, in some ways, even though it's overlooked and ignored by even sociologists and philosophers like this, is truly an articulation of identification. And this is self-conscious identification with a class. So where Bourdieu is saying that taste classifies you, you just may not realize that you're being classified by your taste. Fashion is something where you consciously, you don't realize maybe what your motivation is, but you're making a conscious choice to identify with whatever group that you identify with. I had to ask myself while I was reading it whether in America, 
Wes made a point that we don't talk about class. It's We're conspicuous about how little we talk about class. But whether the trend we're seeing now towards this lack of stratification, the so-called haves and have-nots, the 1% and the 99%, the disappearing of the middle class, if there isn't some kind of Bourdieuian analysis to be done about how culture and and also, by the way, the attack on education and the mass nature of education when seen as vocational education, as opposed to the kind of education that was very strictly and I probably much more pronounced in 1960s France, take a movie like Inside Out as a work of art or as a culture. Everyone, no matter what class, no matter what education that has kids, takes their kids to kids' movies, or maybe they have their nannies do it. <laughs> But the point is, is that the consumption, if Adorno's analysis about the culture industry and the production of culture, when balanced against Bourdieu's analysis, and we look at today's contemporary American society as we see it from where we sit in our privileged four white male position, is Bourdieu's analysis not as relevant in my mind because it is very French or because it's from the 1960s? And does Adorno's make more sense because it's much more explicit about its articulation of the relationships between capital and culture, which in the society we live in now seems much more pronounced? And is the fact that Bourdieu is so, as Mark, you put it, refreshingly non-Marxist actually a weakness of his analysis when we try to transpose it onto our contemporary American society? I'm not sure. But I certainly thought it was worth reading. And I would be interested to see who the modern heirs of Bourdieu are and see if there's somebody who's doing something similar, like an updated version of the analysis that might be worth, you know, kind of a revisit at some point. I thought this was miles ahead of the Adorno, just in terms of Adorno's snobbishness, <laughs> just putting a light on like, well, where does that come from? You could still maybe end up being kind of snobby, but like you at least have to understand if you're going to dismiss something as barbarism, <laughs> like where the hell did that term come from? And I think uh, Bourdieu gives a really good explanation of why some philosopher would approach things in that way. And I would hope that an Ordorno would read this and be more self-reflective than we saw in, you know, the little follow-up essay from 20 years later from the 60s by Adorno after people had accused him to being a snob, basically just repeating himself and clarifying things and defending himself. This really hit home to me in a lot of ways in terms of... Uh, even though I think the self-defeating aspect of this, where even if you try to stop being a snob and take up things from the lower classes, you'll just take them up ironically and end up being more of a snob. Like, I, I think that the thing that we've learned about irony is that it actually doesn't work that way, that, that snobbishness is to some degree curable. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. even if you just... Like, I want to find out what the deal, what is with NASCAR? In fact, I know somebody who had the same background, the same college, who is now really into NASCAR because he just had friends that were into that. And like, he understands it now that you can get the internal logic of any of these things. And it's not a matter of you're stuck in your little snobbish hole or something that you can take on these other art forms. My biggest objection to this whole picture that he's put forward is just that, yes, the way Kant has described it and the way many philosophers have described it is to really get into a work of art, you kind of have to set necessity aside. You have to have the leisure to engage it. And I think that far from that being something, the way that, that Bourdieu describes that is, well, because that requires a certain economic privilege to get in that situation, then sort of while you're doing that, you being economically privileged is somehow present in the experience 
Whereas I feel like, no, no, that's actually just what experiencing a work of art is. And in fact, somebody even who has to work like a dog all day, when they go home and enjoy some music or whatever, they can do that just as well. It's not just for them, as Adorno might describe it, that they have to have the kind of art that will just let them forget about their troubles enough to be able to ship shape and go back to work. <laughs> but that that's a requirement for art itself. And maybe you could make a critique that working class art that cannot really take the time and really have the patience to get into, you know, this work is related to this work and they have a whole history of experience of work in its relationship to other connected works, that sort of way that Bourdieu is characterizing the aristocrats. But I would just hope that as society progresses, that it's not that we get rid of the distinction. It's just that this actual exposure, openness to art becomes something that is, if it's not already available to all, that it gets there. And I think even now, much more of the populace than a mere elite has access to this sort of aesthetic experience. Anybody else have final thoughts? I really enjoyed both this and the Adorno. <laughs> I don't know where I stand on the snobbery versus anti-snobbery question. I'm of two minds about it. The thing that I like about this, as opposed to, and I wasn't part of your Adorno conversation, but I'm glancingly enough familiar with it, is that as I read this, it makes me look to myself. As you said before, Mark, it doesn't matter if I try to change the way I'm experiencing stuff or what I'm experiencing. I'm just going to fall into these patterns no matter what. But at least it's my fault. I'm using my taste to mark myself off from some other. It's not something that's being imposed on me from forces beyond my control necessarily. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you again, Tim. And I think this worked out thanks pretty well. Thanks for letting me play in your guys' sandbox. Hey, yeah, Tim, just out of curiosity. Out. Yeah, I appreciated it. So you kept referring to this band you traveled with. I haven't actually listened to Mark's latest. <laughs> None of the other guys have listened that's, to any No, that's podcast. not true. I've listened, so just put it I out listened there. to... The first minute of the first episode. <laughs> no, I listened to the entirety of the first episode. And then I did actually look up the Cutting Crew guy because I didn't remember that name. And I do remember that song. But that's beside the point. Go on with the... <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> what was the name of your band? That you toured with? The main band was Too Much Joy, the one that had a freak out about ACDC and devoted a whole concept album to the moment was called Wonderlick. Wonderlick. All right, and so folks are about to hear a Wonderlick song, and if you want to hear more Wonderlick and Too Much Joy, please go subscribe to Nakedly Examined Music and freaking listen to it. Is that Wonderlick? Wonderlick is actually, it's named after a character in a Don DeLillo novel, so you know what class I'm in. And let me tell you something. The pretentious. Yeah, I'll tell you what class I'm not in. I gotta say, tried to read that. I've never been able to get into Don DeLillo. Try White Noise. It's eminently readable. It's really short and it's laugh out loud funny. Oh, you know, I got through Underworld and I enjoyed it a lot. I could not get through White Noise. It was too much of the same shit. Every really? Day. It's, 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 got, it's I, the main character is a professor of Hitler studies. That's hilarious. I did not get into it. I'll try it again sometime. Here's the litmus test. Have you read the entirety of Infinite Jest? I have. Okay. <laughs> I have, and it's genius, and I say that unapologetically. I, I couldn't. I just couldn't. I was sad when I got to the end because I wanted there to be another thousand pages. There's just a point where someone's too clever for their own good. <laughs> I tried desperately to read that seriously, and maybe that was my problem, but I had two bookmarks, one for the footnotes. And it, <laughs> that's the way to do it at page 334 i gave up wow if you need an entree into david foster wallace's oeuvre 
get the essay yeah. collection, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, and read that one essay. Yeah, that, that's a hilarious. That's a great essay. That's no, I worship the guy. I honestly think he was an enlightened being who is tragically tormented. Cannot read that book. Also did not so much enjoy that little biopic with Jesse Eisenberg. And yeah, I couldn't bring myself to see it. But I, I, It's I not as bad as of... you'd think. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that's coming up here is that the snobbery is, since they're all different arts with different entry points, it's not that you're just a snob about everything. What Wes considers highbrow music, <laughs> I consider aspiring middlebrow music. But yet I like the Lord of the Rings films just fine. Oh, and he thinks that I'm a yes. Philistine yes, for that. So. And, where, and I found Infinite Jest to be a page turner. Well, I'll try again. I've matured a few years now, so I, I always like to go back. And Apart from the fact that I just name dropped Don DeLillo, I have very little patience with most literary fiction. I will read Elmore Leonard all day long. What about Murakami? Oh, he's great. He's... Um, uh, that's the type of thing that I have very little patience for. I... Oh, Murakami, yeah. I eat that up. That's yeah. like sci-fi to me. It's so easy. Oh, my God. Are you seriously? Yeah. I love that. I tried. Uh... I tried. I mean, my wife reads <laughs> everything. I read Wind Up Bird Chronicles and maybe one other. Well, speaking of page turners, next time we're going to be discussing a brand new page turner by Professor John Searle, seeing things as they are. And our special guest will be John Searle. Talking oh to us, God. talking over us, talking at him? us. Persistence. <laughs> Mark stalking him for a year. <laughs> we are supported by your donations. Please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com to make a giant contribution. Big donors since last time have included Brian Daly, Noah Larrasee, Frederick Lyford, Clifford Boglin, Andres Iamin Martinez, Richard Loringer, Sarah Dwyer, Sam Bagley, Kathy Scott, Shea Robinson, Sandro Reyes, Aaron Amini, Max Friedman, Stephen Robinson, Robert King, Joey Probulus, Dory Media, Trent Marchuk, Philip Garnett, Jacob Schneidman, Gosdem Gurbutsatik, Mark Laura, Chris Lowry, Dana Copeland, Marie Anchidiak, Noah Larisi, Adam Jones, Baris Ari, Dumas Harshaw Jr., Brian McKinney, Justin Christensen, Kenneth Daly, Stephen Persons Parks, Neil Holmes, Sebastian Canali, Paul Engman, Mark Sicarello, Robert Mooring, Summer Clavo, Christopher Dudak, Everett Reed, George McLaughlin, Justin Anderson, James Allen, Robert Golden, Scott Mitchell, David Stanton, Jeannie Carey, Randall Rose, Megan Edwards, David Kling, and Richard Ostrom III. Thank you. And all the wow. folks that give us the $5 a month membership things, which are too numerous to name. So there you go. Hey, uh, people should go on the blog, partiallyexaminedlife.com. Respond to the blog post corresponding to this episode to tell us things that you did or didn't like about this. Points to discuss. Come on. You can go on the Facebook group. There's also that kind of stuff there. You can follow us on Twitter. There's probably a LinkedIn group. There's so many options. My God. All right. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.
this is harmless But when daylight comes Things are so severe Special for the mercy of circumstance. 